Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, the history of the coronation. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, where today we are stepping outside of the uh, current series of the Queens and Prince Consorts and instead kind of stepping back to our first series where we reviewed all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II because in this one-off special in anticipation of the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla we are doing a special episode on the history of the coronation which does pretty much take us through Alfred the Great to well to Charles III. We're not doing his coronation then? We're not doing his coronation because his at the time of recording hasn't happened yet. Okay. So it's not news? It's not news. We're not looking ahead to the future. This is just a history uh, of the coronation, which, I say, is featured in most of the episodes that we've done, but usually it's just a little small bit at the start of the reign. But now, good opportunity to look at it in its own right, how it's changed over time, some of the amusing things that go wrong, and why we even have a coronation in the first place. Good point. So let's head back to the past and back to the beginning. Anglo-Saxons. I said we were going back to Alfred the Great, but actually we know very little about the coronations of most of the Saxon monarchs. Indeed, we don't know if Alfred was even consecrated as king at all. Really? Yeah, so we've got the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle gives an account of when he went to Rome that Pope Leo IV consecrated him in 853 as a child, but it's either a vast exaggeration, given that Alfred's father was king, also there, and Alfred had several older brothers, so he probably wouldn't have consecrated yeah, him king at right. that point. Um, or simply the story was just invented to make Alfred seem better later on. So, but it, in, in any of those versions doesn't suggest that a coronation in England, was, as it was then, was, mm. was necessary? Or? Well, th- there's a tradition that the early Saxon kings had coronations of a sort in Kingston-upon-Thames. Oh, clues in the name. In London. Well, yeah, so it utilised a, a large stone, which does still survive today, uh, and is located next to the Guildhall in Kingston. Really? So you can go and have a look at it. Um, so the stone rests on a seven-sided plinth, which names the kings who are said to have had their coronations there. So that's Edward the Elder, Athelstan, Edmund, Edred, Edwig, Edward the Martyr, and Ethelred, i.e. the unready. Well, it's just sitting next to a Greg's or something. Basically, Yes. With a little bit of fencing around it. Um, but that's This mega. incredible moment of history, yeah. And it's just, just this little stone. I'm going to have to Google that. Hang on. I just want to see it in position and see. Because, uh, right, that that is absolutely ludicrous. It's just a stone. The Victorians have clearly stone. got to it, haven't Yeah, they? so the plinth is Victorian that gives the names. That is bizarre. It used to be in a church, which was knocked down. So when all 
ruined and then knocked down. So when they were clearing it out, they were like, ah, oh, there's a big stone here. So is it in the position it was? In? No, there is sort of talk of potentially moving it back into the sort of the nearest church. Oh, right. So that has just been moved to a park. So right. it's just been moved, yeah, just out into the market stall, basically. Okay, still. Hmm. Oh, I don't really want to know what to say. I feel like um, the English heritage has just forgotten. Yes. Should, someone just may drop them in a phone call. I think someone should touch it and see if like they get the sword and the stone powers okay, or something. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so seven kings named, not Alfred, actually, to be fair. Oh, yeah. um, it was sort of on the border of Wessex and Mercia, so maybe that's a bit better for later when the Wessex kings that ultimately becomes England are sort of staking their authority over the whole of the country. Yeah. Uh, only three of these, Athelstan, Edred and Ethelred, are actually attested to as occurring by contemporary sources. Right. Uh, at Kingston. The others we're relying on later medieval chroniclers who make some flagrant historical errors, such as dead archbishops overseeing the ceremony. Uh, <laughs> yeah, dead in the sense that they, they claim couldn't. it was them and they were actually dead rather yeah, than yeah. they rise from the grave well you never know um, uh, still three and indeed there is a legend that as you were saying Kingston that the name comes from King's Stone yeah uh, but actually Tun means farmstead or settlement so Northampton Southampton mm. Wolverhampton those are all settlements like so it's the King's settlement it's just some oh, yeah. land of the King okay. but which makes sense I guess yeah. if that's where his stone is yeah 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 so we've got a little bit of a legend there around the Kingston uh, coronation stone. Not a lot of detail. To get to the true beginning of the history and the coronation of in England, we need to talk about Dunstan. Do we? Oh, Do we, though, actually? I mean, are you just saying that because uh, the man uh, exists to haunt me? Or? No, he, he really is critical to the entire history of the coronation. And when was he? He was... So, in 973. <laughs> 973. That's Who's the coron- around then? Well, it's the coronation of Edgar the Peaceable. Oh, okay, brilliant. So we're in back past. in Edgar firm territory. Oh, yes, yeah. this is classic yeah. first series Rex yeah. Factor. Edgar is a great-grandson of Alpha the Great, and Edgar rules from 959 to 975, and his reign is seen as the high point of Anglo-Saxon England mm-hmm. at its richest, its most powerful, a uh, certain level of dominion over the whole island uh, of Britain, secure yeah. from invasion at peace internally. Didn't get the Rex Factor notorious, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, so that's why he's Edgar the Peaceable Edgar himself was notorious for kidnapping a nun and murdering one of his best mates for marrying someone that Edgar fancied he sounds awesome I should give him a listen (laughs) Edgar was one of several uh, consecutive young Saxon kings in which the reigns were quite short but there was a lot of continuity in terms of the key advisers Oh, right. Yeah, here we the go. most prominent yeah, amongst yeah, whom yeah. was Dunstan, mm. uh, who was initially abbot at Glastonbury, goes on to be Archbishop of Canterbury, and his long life sees him serve a remarkable seven kings. Yep. Uh, and he's a key figure in creating and shaping the English state. Because mm. Alfred, Athelstan, Edward the Elder sort of create it in battliness, and then afterwards it's mm. Dunstan to do all the, uh, the paperwork. Dunstan also has four when it comes to coronations, because the only pre-Edgar coronation story we have is for his older brother, Edwig. Yeah. Oh, yes! When Edwig went missing from his coronation banquet, Dunstan, Dunstan found Edwig in bed with uh, Edwig's girlfriend and her mother. Yes, famously. Hang on. Here she is. Hey. Here, here, here she's. It was plural of she. They. A chronicler noted that uh, Dunstan had found them repeatedly wallowing... Uh, Ed, uh, sorry, found um, Edwig... Repeatedly wallowing between the two of them in evil fashion, as if in a vile sty. <laughs> he loves it, doesn't he? Just the way he described that, he spent ages thinking about that. <laughs> exactly the right. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, Dunstan admonished Edwig, dragged him back to the banquet, and uh, not surprisingly, was then forced into exile until Edwig died. Yeah. I mean, he was lucky he wasn't run through with, um... <laughs> a sword. <laughs> Bing! <laughs> wasn't he, though? I mean, that's outrageous. Well, that's why he has to flee into exile, obviously. So, Dunstan is determined on something rather more salubrious when it comes to Edgar's coronation, and he himself devises the whole ceremony at Bath. So, Edgar, wearing a crown and holding a scepter, is led in a procession into the church by two bishops. On entering, he removes his crown, prostrates himself before the altar, while Dunstan intones the Te Deum, a hymn of praise. Uh, and Edgar makes three pledges to God, uh, that the Church of God and all Christian people preserve peace at all times, that he forbid rapacity and all iniquities to all degrees, and that in all judgments he enjoin equity and mercy. His head is then anointed with holy oil by Dunstan, symbolising a moment of rebirth, where he goes from just being a man to a king, uh, and accompanied by various prayers invoking the exemplar kings of the Old Testament. Right. Edgar is then presented with various pieces of royal regalia, so a ring, the seal of holy faith, a sword to vanquish his enemies, protect the realm, the crown of glory and righteousness, the scepter, which is the sign of kingly power, the rod of the kingdom, the rod of virtue, and the staff of virtue and equity. Right, so anyway, um, Dunstan's (laughs) just made all this up. Uh, well, he hasn't completely made it up. It's the it's of his own devising, but he's got some inspiration for it, which we okay. will come to in a moment. But is he the star of the show? Like the king is is bending down before Dunstan. Before Dunstan, yeah, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> Apparently, Dunstan wept tears at Edgar's humility. Yeah, I mean, he can't believe his luck. He's like, I've got the king bowing before me. I've won. <laughs> Uh, now, other than Dunstan's uh, rampant ego, the question might be asked why they go to the bother of doing all of this. Good point. Because mm. um, they could have just gone to Kingston, stood on a rock and said, King, yep, yep. Well, they could have just done a seal or whatever. If they need some admin. Just- seal? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, with an incriminating bow tie if they want to make it <laughs> fancy. Um, well, the... Kingston um, ceremony, of course, is probably a more secular one. Uh, Dunstan obviously wants to make it a little more sacral uh. and religious. Um, but there is also a secular reason for it. Um, we said that Edgar's reign is seen as the peak of Anglo-Saxon power, and the coronation is very much its apogee, and it's a statement of imperial might, because it's followed the service by a ceremony in which seven Welsh and Scottish kings row Edgar along the River Dee. Yeah, so that's the Empire bit. It, mm, and he's referred to in contemporary documents at this time as Imperator, Bath, lots of Roman ruins, of course, so an appropriately imperial setting. The timing is also odd for the coronation because Edgar's been king for 14 years by this point. What? And it's hard to imagine he hadn't already maybe popped down and stood on the rock and said, am I king? Yep. Yeah, so it's all completely unnecessary. So maybe it's, as we said, that statement of imperial might. They do again a big service to say, look, we really are this powerful. Look how yeah. grand we are. It's also, though, the point at which Edgar turns 30, and that's the age of Jesus' baptism, and it's also thus the mm. canonical age, i.e. the age at which you can become a priest. So with the anointing, Edgar's kind of becoming right? a king priest. I don't know if that's still the case now, but I think it certainly was. So, I mean, that that's why the... Um uh, Dunstan's so keen on this because it, it to get the church so involved mm. really increased their power exactly and this is of course the point as I said that Dunstan is helping to shape 
the way that the country and the state operates. Yeah. So church and state together, that's part of Dunstan's monastic reforms, yeah. which Edgar supports, and it's also ensuring that the church is right there at the heart of how the kingdom and indeed kingship operates. So this is establishing you need a church for a king and vice versa. This to me is, if you ever needed more evidence as to why Edgar didn't get it, <laughs> is this, he, he was so arrogant too in his overconfidence that he was the man, that he gave away this moment. He gave away the, 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 the need for, to be king to the church to give it that final stamp of approval. Mm. And you can't ever go back. He, he just wanted a bit of fancy fluff and it, <laughs> and it meant that, that Henry years later had to split. Mm. I don't like this, Matt. Either of these main characters. Ah. Oh. Well, one thing that's worth noting, though, is how... I mean, you're sort of saying about how this is where it all begins and... Yeah. Or that's what we've got, who we've got to blame. Yeah. But it really is that influential because you may pick up already, but what I was describing there is essentially still the ceremony yeah, that we have now. The- that's largely what I, you could describe as happening mm. for Charles III when it happens. Over a thousand years later, you know, the taking of an oath, anointing, investing with all the regalia, crowning, enthronements, some alterations along the way, which we'll talk about, of course, but it really is tweaking rather than scrapping it and, and to me, redoing it. That's the impressive bit. It's like uh, this whole ancestry business. It's just that it's been going on so long. Like popes have touched the hand of the pope before them, so there's a link to Jesus <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Because Rue was um, doing a game the other day with a fort where to enter you had to do a certain thing, you had to say something and then touch that and come through and do that. That little ceremony, mm. it holds just as much like actual water because he doesn't have any power you know, it, to say I'm the king of this fort. <laughs> it could just keep doing that for a thousand years. Hmm. Um, so that's the impressive bit. That it's, being, it's still got the same sticks and balls and things that they mm. play with. And it does sticks and balls. Yeah. I suppose it doesn't have a tongue. <laughs> that, yeah. it, it could well have had a little tongue. <laughs> should in have it. Had, it should be out there on the top of Westminster Abbey, shouldn't it, before they go yeah. in? Yeah. Like in football, where they run through and, like, for good luck, hit Touch something the thing. On the thing yeah, yeah. The, uh... Wouldn't put it past his arrogance. <laughs> Um, I said that the the, uh, the crowning, we've got these various prayers said invoking exemplar biblical kings. The culmination uh, of those prayers uh, was the following anthem. Zadok the priest and Nathan oh, the prophet anointed Solomon king, and they blew the trumpets and piped the pipes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth rent with the sound of them. And they said, God save King Solomon, long live the king, may the king live forever. Uh, now, those words may be familiar, of course, as the words to Handel's famous coronation anthem. Say that the priest. Say that the priest. Best. As you will see, that comes a lot later in terms of Handel's music, but the words and the, um, not the prayer, but the reading, whatever, will have been used, either recited or sung, with different music, at every coronation from Edgar till today. Long live the king. Hmm. Long live... I used to sing that all the time. <laughs> as a, not for fun, out of... Um, duty. <laughs> <Bang tune. laughs> but um, uh, that's fascinating. So they're not trying to claim, though, that um, our monarchy has anything stretching back to Solomon, are they? It's not exactly stretching back in terms of um, family trees, um, but it is the... It is the inspiration for the ceremony. Yeah. Um, so, as I say, it goes back. We've got um, Solomon that we've mentioned there from Zadok the priest. Um, Saul, who Samuel anoints as king of Israel, saying, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? I, the anointing is meaning that you are chosen by God to rule. So that is the origin point in terms of the Western Christian nations for 
where the coronation comes from mm. but there's quite a big gap between these biblical kings and then mm. medieval rulers so in the meantime it would have just been priests and holy objects that were anointed so they still had this anointing ceremony just they weren't doing it to kings right so um, that's only saxon people were doing that uh well no so this is before we've got saxons etc so this is how we cover oh. a couple more thousand years well not a couple more thousand a thousand years yeah. it's a spread of christianity in particular obviously when the roman empire goes yeah. east and then you have Byzantium. Mm. The Byzantine emperors start being crowned and anointed from about the 5th century. Then 751, King uh, Pepin the Short mm. of the Franks, or early France, is anointed by Pope Stephen II. And that's kind of the big starting point at which the Western kings mm. and the church comes in. So Charlemagne's crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope in Rome in 800. And his son's the first one to combine crowning and anointing. Yeah, okay, so there's a trend, and now Dunstan seen it. So Dunstan sees what's happening with the French, yeah. and that's where he gets it from. Yeah, of course. Though an interesting thing that is different between England and France is the French monarchy always very sort of absolutist, whereas the English monarch, we've got this anointing kind of on the condition with that coronation oath that the king is pledging to do certain things in return for which he is yeah. anointed king. So there's always a sense that the English king has to meet certain standards rather than just being oh, that's good. all-powerful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even that modern one that they're doing this year says within the law or something. Mm. Uh, oh, interesting. So there obviously is coronation ceremonies of a sort going on with the sort of, mm. quote, barbarian rulers, but... What about Caesars with their... Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's yeah. also a form. I mean, like all these sort of monarch cultures will have a form of coronation. I think yeah. the crucial thing here is obviously the central role of the church, a crown, um, which, again, the secular world didn't always have. I think not until possibly Athelstan we don't have an English king depicted really? with a crown. So they probably just had a helmet because it's the focus on them as a warrior, yeah. whereas the crown is the more majestic. We always think of it thing. being on the head. I mean, why isn't there a blooming royal anklet or something? Why is it always the head? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that's where your brains are, mm. apparently. <laughs> but, what, you know, well, I suppose that's it. It's closest to God or something. You're up there. Looks fancy. Does look fancy. Or, okay, what about like a sh big shiny breastplate or something mm. manly? <laughs> I can't think of anything more manly than a big shiny He-Man <laughs> breastplate. But I reckon in other cultures, like Thailand's got a monarchy, hasn't it? I bet mm. oh, they've got crowns, haven't they? Mm. I wonder, just trying to take it as far back as I can. You get silverback gorillas. The history of the crown. <laughs> yeah, I want, to, I, I want to deep dive into something very specific in this deep dive <laughs> here. But yeah, maybe there's a like uh, in Animal Kingdom, you have plumage on your head. Mm, yeah, silverback. Yeah. Now, one last significance of Edgar's coronation, as I say, it is a biggie, Edgar's yeah, wife, yeah. Um, is in relation to his wife, Elfrith, as she is crowned and anointed as queen. Oh. Which you might take as a given, because she's his wife, but in fact, Kingdom of Wessex, historically, was very averse yeah. to queens. Alfred told his biographer uh, the semi-legend of Edbur, who was a Mercian princess that became queen of Wessex, but undermines yeah. the kingdom from within and ultimately kills uh, the king, and for that reason, Wessex is always suspicious of queens they never even call them yeah. queen uh, Alfred also has personal experience of the danger of queens when his father remarried and he married a French princess and of course in France they were all about coronation so insisted that Judith as it was was crowned and anointed anyway so Alfred's father remarries French princess she gets uh, crowned and anointed because that's what the French do but it's seen as being such a provocative statement of power 
and the brothers worry what if she has children will they outrank us that they the sons actually rebelled against the father yeah so again alfred is like mm, queens Bad news. anointing we don't do that um so even you know he's married to his wife is elsewith and he's married to her for over 30 years but she's never even mentioned in any contemporary sources of alfred's reign oh, yeah. certainly not queen mm. uh, but elfrith under edgar enjoys real power she allies with a, another powerful bishop ethelwald she didn't really get on with dunstan um defines a role for the queen as head as the nation's female religious and acknowledgement of this and perhaps also combined with edgar's uh, imperial ambitions because the holy roman empress has been yeah. crowned a year or two before she Elfrith is crowned and anointed queen at Bath as well. She sounds aw- Did she get Rex Factor? She did. She yeah, did, she yeah. sounds awesome. Uh, so while Edgar presides over a banquet for the great nobles and bishops of the lands, Elfrith presides over a separate one for the abbots and abbesses. That, that's a, uh, a much bigger cultural leap, it feels. Mm. Well, I guess the combination you've got there, yeah. you've got the king being crowned and anointed, that the fact that the king's wife is crowned and anointed queen, you've got everything sort of really... Yeah. Starts there. Everyone's saying, when should we do this again? <laughs> I forgot, hey, 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 treason. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a landmark moment, but we don't really have much recorded for quite a while again in terms of coronations oh. um, until we get to Edward the Confessor. Hmm. Now, he is the Saxon son of Ethelred the Unready and Emma of Normandy. Oh, yeah. Now, ironically, his own coronation is not particularly notable, but his contribution is to future ones because he creates and has built Westminster Abbey of course so where, were they, where was Dunstan kicking about then what? well Dunstan's one is in Bath just because I guess for the setting he got it, a location manager and said this one will do great that is always what the Saxons feel before the big <laughs> locations come in it feels like um, Spurs playing at Wembley when they're having their stadium <laughs> people. It's all, they're always on the road yeah is they're not actually sorted yet Let's find somewhere. Somewhere someone must have built something. The Romans had buildings. Let's find a big one that's still yeah. outstanding. Well, if you're a film director and you had to do this mm. and all of a sudden the historian comes on and you've got, you know, million dollar questions hanging over your head and the historian comes in and goes, actually Westminster Abbey wasn't built then. You'd <laughs> go, I don't care. Because you'd have all of the Saxons in Westminster Abbey, definitely. Um and uh what was the point of this? Yeah, you'd have them in there. That's what gives the Saxons a bad rep to me. Mm. They, don't, they haven't got it quite proper yet. Well, they've got the stone. That, and that's why that's forgotten, isn't it? <laughs> that's why, if that were in Westminster Abbey, people, you'd be making millions out of that each year. <laughs> that's postcards true. and, well, I don't know what these days. Well, with Edgar the Confessor, we get Westminster Abbey. There had been a small monastery on the site uh, in the 7th century. It becomes more firmly established by uh, Dunstan. Yeah later on um and it was dubbed the western monastery or the minister of the west oh right yeah because it's in the relatively east of the country isn't it <laughs> i see um but vikings destroyed the settlement in the 11th century and it was largely forgotten thereafter until edward decided it was here that he would construct a vast new abbey uh, despite the fact that it's at this point basically just a swampy island known as the isle of thorns because of all the overgrowing vegetation wow but over 20 years, it becomes Edward's uh, passion project, frequently bases himself in Westminster rather than the traditional capital of Winchester, um, mm. which is another location where you might imagine that Saxon kings could have been. Yeah, they might settle on that. Um, so that he can supervise the building. As a result, as he's there all the time, of course, the palace builds up around oh. him um, and royal buildings. So that, of course, becomes Palace of Westminster. Oh, and that big hall is just there 
as a function. Well, I mean, obviously it's a function, mm. but that's why it's there. So the actual, the, the Great Hall, I think it's William Rufus, that comes a little bit later. Oh, okay. not, not much later, only a sort of hundred yeah. years later. But the, that side. But that's why it's there. Yeah. That's why the two of them are there. Uh, but sadly for Edward, his health fails him just as his life's work is completing. He's too ill to attend the consecration of the Abbey. So his oh, wife, no. wife Edith has to represent him. And he dies in the palace of Westminster in January 1066, making him the first monarch to be buried at Westminster Abbey, but the last not to be crowned there when there was a coronation. Ah. Uh, and so for um, he who comes next, William... Well, the first man to be crowned at Westminster Abbey probably is Harold II, or Harold Godwinson. It's the last probably. Saxon king. It doesn't explicitly say where the coronation was, um, but uh-huh. given that it's a day after Edward's funeral, which is at Westminster, it kind of makes sense if they just keep all the trinkets there yeah. rather than lug it over to St Paul's or whatever. Definitely. I mean, it's like, imagine all the news outlets today suddenly... Forget to mention the word Westminster. It's definitely there. Still yeah. I mean, this is where it is all going on. Yeah. And you can imagine doing the Bayo Tapestry. It's like, should we write in Westminster? I think everyone knows where it was. Come yeah, on. exactly. Where else would it be? <laughs> the stone. <laughs> everyone knows where this weird West London suburb is. They'll remember this for a thousand years. Normans. So William the Conqueror, after the Battle of Hastings, begins the new Norman dynasty in 1066, but he very much stresses continuity with Edward the Confessor. So he is definitely crowned in Edward's beloved Westminster Abbey, probably by Eldred, the Archbishop of York, due to doubts over the legitimacy of Stigand, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, right. That's weird. But otherwise, it was still very much the English coronation ceremony. The recognition is acclaimed in both English and French, and unfortunately, the competing English and French voices were incredibly loud, resulting in an unfortunate misunderstanding, as reported by Orderic Vitalis. The armed guard outside, hearing the tumult of the joyful crowd in the church and the harsh accents of a foreign tongue, imagined that some treachery was afoot, and rashly set fire to some of the buildings. The fire spread rapidly from house to house. The crowd who had been rejoicing in the church took fright, and throngs of men and women of every rank and condition rushed out of the church in frantic haste. Only the bishops and a few clergy and monks remained, terrified in the sanctuary, and with difficulty completed the consecration of the king, who was trembling from head to foot. Uh, I can't believe that isn't better known, but it feels an awful lot like when I... Like a Tuesday talk to me that. So when when I'm explaining something to you, some of my um, decisions, and it's only when saying them out loud and and your raised eyebrow that I consider them from another alternative point of view. Because when he's relaying that to the um, investigative commission that comes up afterwards, so I heard a load of shouts and um, was a bit scared. So uh, I set fire to everything. And it, sorry, what? What, like, what kind of reaction is that? Talk me through your thought process there. Well, I mean, you know, I didn't know what was going on, so, uh... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll see it now. <laughs> I mean, I know I can be late, but at least I don't just suddenly turn around and torch the place. <laughs> it wasn't the best of starts for William, though in fairness to him, he was said to have been upset by the affair and visited some of those who'd suffered as a result of the fire. Oh, Blitz Spirit. Now, in 1068, he felt rather more secure so that his wife, Matilda Flanders, could come to England for her coronation as queen. It's odd. I, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but it feels 
it is it's a hostile place isn't it it'd be like if the Americans were trying to take over Afghanistan or something and the first lady coming over you'd have to be really secure yeah so she is crowned at Winchester rather than Canterbury and that's oh. that's the old cathedral before they knock it down is that to get the, the old lot on side yeah yeah, yeah. But her ceremony does establish the tradition of a champion, so that's a knight who'd ride into the hall during the coronation banquet and challenge anyone to single combat if they would deny the right of the monarch uh, Brilliant. to rule. Here comes the silliness. They're, they're, they're starting to really play with the format here. They're uh, laying it down. That's solid. Now what can we put on top? Now, in a funny way, the coronation under the Normans became almost the instrument of a coup rather than the sacred process by which the rightful heir came to the throne. Um, obviously, of course, William the Conqueror takes the throne in battle. Yeah. William Rufus and Henry I uh, first both leapfrog their older brother. Mm-hmm. So they have to rush to get themselves uh, crowned. It becomes what you need to do, doesn't it? It's the thing now. While King Stephen snuck in ahead of his cousin, the Empress Matilda, uh. Uh, whose right to rule he had sworn to protect multiple times. It's not smooth, is it, at the start? It's not smooth, but this flexibility in the succession did make the coronation ceremony highly important. However much it might be acknowledged that Stephen was not the rightful heir, once he had been anointed king, everyone accepted this meant that he is the king. Yeah. Uh, and that is seen as a sacred process that makes you different, raises you up. Exactly. There we go. Thanks, Edgar. He's legitimised Rupert's blooming fort. Plantagenets. The Norman kings had to demonstrate their right to rule, but initially, at least, the Plantagenets are rather more confident in their position, so the ceremony becomes more magnificent as yeah. a result. Uh, Henry II, the first of the Plantagenets, is the most powerful monarch in English history to this point, uh, ruling this vast Angevin empire that incorporates... The left of France. The left of France. Um, and his is also the first known joint coronation, with Henry and his remarkable wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, crowned King and Queen of England a remarkable and magnificent ceremony that heralded a new era after the woes of the anarchy under Stephen. Yeah. I still... It's, we still haven't yet had a uh, father to... Or, you know, a father-to-son progression. Well, we have, because William the Conqueror is oh, yeah, by yeah. his son, William Rufus, but it's uh, not his eldest son. Yeah. I just feel like it's not... Until you get a couple of solid... <laughs> um, rehearsals under your belt <laughs> then start mucking around with the format but it's years though isn't it we're talking about 100 years now well yeah um, and as I said yes it's, it's a lot of moving around it doesn't feel quite as fixed and as ordered mm. as we would expect things to be um, and also the coronation ceremony is still everything's not quite in stone yet what? I guess that's the problem of you know moving away from Kingston yeah well yeah what can, you, what can you do it's a metaphor and real <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one area is who officiates, because the Archbishop of Canterbury had traditionally officiated as the, sort of, the main uh, archbishop in the country. But, as we saw in 1066, William uses the Archbishop of York. He's, he's second in command, isn't he? He's second in command, but yeah. even so, that's, it is messing with the format yeah. a little bit. Um, Henry I was in such a rush to get crowned that he didn't wait for the exiled Archbishop of Canterbury and Selm to come back to England. Who was Henry the First. Right, so yeah. That's after yeah. Rufus gets yeah. the arrow in the hunting accident. Yeah, he, he can't mess about, can he? So he's just got to get himself crowned straight away, can't yeah. wait for the Archbishop. Uh, Henry gets Anselm back on side by having him officiate the ceremony for his queen, Matilda of Scotland. Okay. Well, so who did he get, then, if he couldn't get Anselm? Oh, I can't remember. Was bishop? York or London? It just yeah. basically found a bishop as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but he does manage to offend Anselm's doddery successor, Ralph de Skewer, by uh, getting the Bishop of Salisbury to do the coronation for Henry's second queen, Adeliza of Louvain. 
Mm. Uh, Ralph turns up halfway through the ceremony, demands of Henry, who put that crown on your head? And insisted on taking it off so he could put it back on again. (laughs) I do this, such children, this is Rue's game. Uh, But this is nothing as to what happens when Henry II tries something a little bit similar, because unusually for England, he has his eldest son, the young Henry, crowned as co-king in 1170. But the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, is in long-term exile and furious at this attack on Canterbury's prerogative, because of course he can't do the ceremony, uh, threatens all the bishops involved with excommunication. Can he do that if he's not there? Well, he is still the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Pope is sort of supporting him a bit. Um, In the short term, it does lead to negotiations that ultimately sees Beckett coming back from exile. Uh, So short term, have some chats and Beckett agrees to come back. Uh, In the slightly more than short term, Beckett undermines the spirit of compromise by excommunicating the bishops anyway, just before he comes back. And Finding what out Beckett about, does. Yeah. What a toad. And finding out about this uh, leads to an outburst of anger from Henry II that some drunk knights interpret as a directive to brutally murder Thomas Beckett at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral. I mean, Graham, you should, work, you should definitely work for Henry's defence because when you put it <laughs> like that, <laughs> that is... What a rotter. Uh, not great for Beckett, obviously, but Henry was able to survive the international scandal really only by playing a part in sanctifying Beckett. And, of course, Canterbury then is this great pilgrimage site, and this really does establish once and for all Canterbury supreme, and you really should get the Archbishop of Canterbury to do the coronations. Right, okay. So, pros and cons from Beckett's perspective. Yeah. I mean, he'd have loved it to be a martyr. I mean, he he never knew, but... (laughs) (laughs) They they call him that, don't they, the martyr? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a saint, Saint, Saint Thomas Beckett. Well, he can live on that. (laughs) Or not. Uh, as we saw with William the Conqueror, sometimes the magnificence of the coronation can be undermined by things going on outside. Uh, so Henry the Second's son uh, that does succeed him is Richard the Lionheart. Oh yeah, because the young king dies. Um, Richard's coronation is a very glorious spectacle, lots of Arthurian overtones. Uh, though the day, the third of September, had been marked by astrologers as an Egyptian day. Oh dear, that's an ill-omened or evil day, or dies mali, from which we get dismal. Really? Mm-hmm. Why would Dies Malé? Is that French or something? Or Latin. Oh, right. Mali is bad. Dies yeah. Day. <laughs> How's your day? Dismal. Huh. Dies Malé. <laughs> Dies Malé. Uh, <laughs> but I don't like to say that. So, Dies Malé <laughs> na- nine? No, that's German. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, during the ceremony, a bat flew around the abbey, despite it being in the middle and bright part of the day. Tell you what, that is pretty weird. That is a bit weird, isn't it? Uh, but it's events outside of the abbey that will prove to be ill-omened. Hmm. Richard ordered that no women or Jews should be present at the coronation banquet. Oh, so he's getting just desserts? Uh, well, he doesn't. Uh, a delegation of London... Uh, of I'm not sure if it's London Jews, actually. A, del- a delegation of Jews decide that they will come anyway and bring some gifts for Richard. But before they can get inside, they are set upon by a mob. Some are killed. Others in the surrounding areas have their houses burnt to the ground. And then anti-Jewish feeling, with taxes quite high to pay for Richard's uh, upcoming crusade, spread across the country. So we have massacres in Stamford, Lincoln, Norwich, Lynn and York, most famously or infamously, where the community took shelter in Clifford's Tower mm. and eventually choose to take their own lives because of the mob that's trying to get inside. That's all because of this. It's sparked by the coronation. Mm. Now, in fairness to Richard, it wasn't organised at his behest. Uh, he has the ringleaders in London rounded up and hanged. 
And uh, he had asked at the time in the banquet uh, of the doorkeeper what was the cause of all the noise outside. Uh, but the doorkeeper told him, nothing, only the boys rejoice and are merry at heart. So this massacre was going on mm. at Richard Lionheart's coronation of Jewish people. Yeah. And they, he thought it was them celebrating. Well, the doorkeeper tells him that, uh, not so truthfully. Uh, when Richard learns the truth, he uh, had the said doorkeeper tied to the tails of some horses and dragged to death. Oh, right. I mean, I'm so some People say Richard's a harsh and nasty man, but look how... Uh, uh, look how um, fairly he treated that um, man. Oh, but hang on, he was the one that didn't want Jewish people or women in London. Not in London, just at the banquet. At the banquet. What was he... What? He's just a traditionalist. <laughs> just don't don't confront your grandfather. He's from... <laughs> uh, Richard is succeeded by uh, King John, his brother, who's one of the most notorious of English monarchs. Um, but besides rumours that he declined to partake and the uh, holy bread and wine, his coronation wasn't particularly notable, but his disastrous reign does have an impact on his son's coronation. Because when John dies in 1216, half the country, including London, is in the hands of uh, rebellious barons and the French Dauphin. Oh, yeah. So uh, John's son, Henry III, is just a nine-year-old boy, doesn't even have a crown, because uh, John's lost it in the Lincolnshire <laughs> Wash. Uh, but the coronation is vital to stake a claim to the throne, so Henry's mother, Isabella of Angoulême, has him acclaimed as king on the streets of Gloucester. Because okay. that's where they are, not just yeah. they don't go to Gloucester. Uh, and then she organises a hasty coronation at the local abbey, which is now Gloucester Cathedral. Uh, the Bishop of Winchester officiates, uh, but he won't crown Henry, because that's the prerogative of the absent Archbishop of Canterbury. So what's he doing then? Just crowning uh he's anointing him and saying da di da di da does the service but he doesn't physically put a crown on his head weird because i i in all of this in order of importance i would have said the putting the crown on was of less importance <laughs> than the magic oil and the words right well i think i mean guess one of the one of the issues for john had, that had caused him trouble had been that a few years ago he'd refused to accept the uh who the archbishop of canterbury was so it's kind of, I guess, part of the black mark against John's name. Oh. So they maybe think, let's not, you know, cause any upset here mm. with Canterbury. Got you. Uh, plus, of course, there isn't a crown to put on his head anyway. Yeah. So uh, actually Isabella uh, provides one of her own headpieces. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to elaborate there. <laughs> well, that could mean anything, couldn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've all seen uh, four weddings in a funeral when they have to rig up a new ring. <laughs> Uh, Isabella doesn't do a lot of good for Henry III during his long reign, but she did do a good job here right at the start. And with the support of the renowned veteran knight, William the Marshal, Henry's forces are ultimately successful in driving out the French and securing the throne. And then after that, he does have a second coronation in 1220 at Westminster Abbey, where he is crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. Is that that's like, seems to be the first almost straightforward one. Like father to son, and he gets crowned. Like John, to I mean, Henry other than the Civil War, where the yeah. French and all the rebellious barons. But before that, it's to brothers. Well, the first one we had, Henry the Second to Richard the Lionheart, is really. Oh right, okay. Other yeah, than, yeah. of course, the fact that Henry dies with Richard rebelling against him. Yeah, it's not common, is it, for it to go as 
normally as you'd think mm. now Henry III also makes a major contribution to the development of the coronation ceremony uh, as Matthew Paris noted in 1245 the Lord King inspired by his devotion to St Edward ordered the Church of St Peter at Westminster to be enlarged so St Edward being Edward the Confessor and the building being Westminster Abbey so it's a major building project um, at Westminster Abbey, um, perhaps intended to outshine Louis IX of France and his work at Saint-Chapelle. And it's the biggest building project in Europe at this time. So Westminster Abbey is significantly enlarged. A whole new shrine is built for Edward the Confessor. Uh, and in the process, it seems they uncovered some of Edward the Confessor's ancient regalia, including his crown. Oh, yeah. So, they just lost it. Uh, well, no, he'd probably, been, he'd probably buried with lots of stuff. No, I mean, like they'd lost the current crown, hadn't they, in the wash? Oh, well, yes, that's so, true. Uh, lost some of the crunch, yeah. yeah. So what does he do? He, he enlarges Westminster Abbey? Yeah, so it, but he makes it really into the grand sort of cathedral that it right. more or less is today. Okay. That's his big project. It does look rather French, those flying buttresses and things. Mm. So Henry III had been in a rush to be crowned, and he'd been saying how we haven't really had a nice, orderly, peaceful transition from father to son. Mm-hmm. The first time it really properly happens post-1066 is... There we go. Edward I completely the opposite scenario edward is actually out of the country at the time on the ninth crusade but everything is now so much more stable and secure that he is able to take allegedly two years mm. to get back to england it's just uh, he's off he's basically off uh volunteering on his gap year yeah abroad yeah and he's called back yeah. like the like our dear old queen in kenya <laughs> Indeed, yes <laughs> Um, and, you know, obviously he as prince had done a lot to make the country secure, defeating to Montford, etc. Um, but it also makes an important point about the status of monarch without a coronation now, because it's established Edward I is king the moment that his father died. He doesn't need the coronation to become king. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is obviously a big change from the Normans, where it was just a race to who could get to a church yeah. with some fancy oil first. Did he have any brothers? Uh, he, yes, he does. But there's no, uh, there's no suggestion. No suggestion. I mean, <laughs> they do would tell. They know exactly what would happen, don't they? Um, Edward is thus the first to enjoy his coronation. And he's called Edward. And he's called Edward. Well, he is named after Edward the Confessor. Yeah. Yeah. See, it was all building to this moment. That is it why is. Edward's reign is the a zenith. Combination. Yeah. So he is the first to enjoy his coronation in the newly enlarged Westminster Abbey, the first to use St. Edward's crown. I guess the first since Edward the Confessor. Um, and it is, of course, an appropriately magnificent ceremony. The first double coronation since Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, I read the first time that a king and queen uh, are crowned together, so I'm not sure if that's either people forgetting about Henry and Eleanor or if it means that they were actually literally properly... At the same time. Yeah. Like in a cartoon. Like be. in a cartoon, whereas Eleanor, perhaps, is a different bit of the ceremony from Henry. Yeah, like support act or mm. undercard. Uh, the Royal Kitchen serve up daily banquets to all and sundry for two weeks. Nice. Uh, but the high point of the festivities uh, was when King Alexander III of Scotland, uh, who's Edward's uh, brother-in-law, dismounts with his escort of 100 knights, at which point they set all their horses free, allowing anyone who could catch one to keep it as a gift. Wow. Like that's, that's properly turning up in a McLaren F1 and throwing the keys into the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 100 McLaren F1s, rather. <laughs> And, uh, and other 30-year-old uh, references. <laughs> a Bugatti EB110. <laughs> Edward makes his uh, own contribution to future coronations. Following his uh, defeat of John Balliol, King of Scots, in 1296, Edward purloins the coronation stone used by the Kings of Scots, which is known as the Stone of Scone. 
Yeah. Uh, so determined to display his trophy, he commissions a special chair which will house the stone. Uh, initially, it was going to be a bronze chair, but he decided on timber. <laughs> Probably because he spent so much money. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this is now known as, well, sometimes known as Edward's chair, but probably known as the coronation chair. Wasn't necessarily intended for that purpose, but it is the oldest piece of English furniture that can be both dated and described to a named carpenter. Well, Rex Fax. Walter of Durham. Um, originally would have been covered in gilding and coloured glass, but that's now entirely lost. We don't know when it became the coronation chair. Henry the Fourth is the first monarch that we know used it for that purpose. Right. It could have been Edward II, but basically that is the chair on which the monarch sits to be crowned. Imagine when all those bits started falling off and you put it into storage and... <laughs> Must just come off. Well, it has taken a lot of damage over the years. In the 18th century, tourists could pay the verger to sit on it. And many Wicked. Of, and many of them, as well as obviously choir boys, can't yeah. put graffiti into it. Oh, it would have been sat on by Westminster choir boys, mm. definitely. Uh, in 1914, the corner of the chair broke off in a bomb planted uh, by the suffragettes. Oh, right. And in 1950, Scottish nationalists broke into Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day and took the stone of Scoon. Oh, yes. Uh, which damaged the chair. They've just all forgotten that there's already one lying around in Kingston. They'd already forgotten. <laughs> he didn't need to go to Scotland. Though <laughs> uh, it was uh, was returned um, for the in time for the Queen's uh, coronation. Um, it was given back to Scotland in 1996, but on the oh, proviso yeah. that it returns to Westminster Abbey for coronation. So it, the stone of Scoon has, in the last already few done days, it, it? Yeah. Yeah. left Scotland for Charles's coronation. Um, the chair itself has only left Westminster Abbey twice, once in 1939 to avoid the Blitz. Yeah. Ironically, it went to Gloucester Cathedral. <laughs> uh, and the first time was for the investiture of Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector, which, being a secular ceremony, took place in Westminster Hall. But he still sat on the chair? But he sat on the chair, because he needed something. He needed the symbolism, didn't he? Mm -hmm. But Because he, he wasn't going to get a crown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, perhaps Edward II might have been the first to use a coronation chair. That's Edward's uh, son. Yeah. Um, his coronation is certainly notable and uh, rather lays the, struggles for, lays the ground for the struggles that will define his entire reign. Uh, unusually, he's crowned by the Bishop of Winchester. Right. Because uh, Edward I had sent the Archbishop of Canterbury into exile because he continually opposed his policies. Yeah, fair. Uh, so we still haven't had a straightforward, just normal coronation... <laughs> Followed by straightforward, normal coronation. That's all I'm looking for in this entire rundown to see if it happens. With the Archbishop has to do both, yeah. and it has to be in Westminster, and they're sons. That's it. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of upset at the prominence given to Edward's favourite, Piers Gaveston. Oh, yeah. Uh, not only was he granted the royal title of Earl of Cornwall, despite being fairly lowly individual, mm. but he'd been made regent when Edward left the country to marry Isabella of France. And several nobles actually threatened to boycott the coronation ceremony unless Gaveston is banished from the kingdom, uh, and Edward II only manages to mollify them by promising to obey anything that he comes out of the next parliament. Wow, just to get him an invite? Mm. Uh, not to get Gaveston an invite, to get them to attend the coronation and not have to exile to Gaveston. Oh! So just to persuade them to come. Wow. Uh, so, as a result, Gaveston is not only not exiled, but he's actually put in charge of organising the coronation. Oh, he's such a doofus, Edward II. He didn't get... He just doesn't hear it, does he? So, Gaveston dresses himself in royal purple. He has the honour of carrying St Edward's crown into Westminster Abbey. And his organisational skills leave a lot to be desired. The service doesn't finish until three o'clock, but the food didn't arrive until well after dark for the banquet. And the food is either raw or boiled to a pulp. There's no real middle ground where it's just 
cooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was a significant coronation. Edward's coronation oath was altered, so the three promises were sort of recast a little bit, and a fourth was added, which bound the king to observe all future laws made by the community of the realm. Right. And it's obviously considered significant because a large number of copies of the oath exists, and when Edward II is forced to abdicate in favour of his son, in favour of his son Edward III in 1327, his failure to fulfil his coronation oath is seen as part of the legalese by oh, which right. they can justify unseating him as king. Okay. Edward III would go on to have a long and mostly glorious reign in which his inherent regal power becomes unquestioned. Uh, unfortunately, he's predeceased by his eldest son, the Black Prince, oh, meaning he is succeeded in 1377 by his ten-year-old grandson, Richard II. Perhaps because a boy king is rather less impressive uh, as a king to be shown off, there's a greater emphasis on spectacle and pageantry. Mm. So Richard II is given a grand procession through the streets of London, which are marked by intermittent pageants. So little sort of Theatrical productions on street corners. Um, and that procession is the beginning of a new tradition. It's mainly embraced by the Tudors, yeah. but it does pop up every now and again. The Queen's quite a bit as well. So Richard stays at the Tower of London the night before the coronation and then processes to Westminster Abbey. Yeah, that, and that affects him, doesn't it? For the rest of his life, he needs all that spectacle. Mm, yes, he is very much about the uh, high kingship. Mm. Um, it's not clear how personally impressive uh, the young king was. Apparently the whole thing rather tied him out, so by the end of the service he was struggling to keep his eyes open. His tutor Simon Burley had to carry him fast asleep outside of the abbey. Oh. Uh, and in the process one of his ceremonial slippers fell off his feet and was never found again. Oh, that's lovely. Oh. How old are we talking? Ten. Oh, sweeties. Richard's coronation also notable for the survival of the Liber Regalis, i.e. the royal book, which has four illuminations describing the crowning of a king, a king and queen, and a king lying in state. So it prescribes the order of service in great detail, and that's the basis for all coronations. Yeah, well, they've grown up and they're putting it in their little books as to how to do it. A textbook of instructions. Now, like Edward II, Richard II is overthrown after a couple of decades on the throne, and he's replaced by his cousin. Doesn't count who became Henry IV, uh, pressure for Henry to justify himself as a truly royal figure. Mm. Uh, so his solution is to announce that he had just discovered an unusually sacred oil, <laughs> whereby the Virgin Mary had herself presented Thomas Beckett with a golden eagle filled with holy oil whilst he was in exile. Blimey. And she told him that the first king to be anointed with this oil would regain Normandy and Aquitaine and build churches in the Holy Land. But she told him to hide the oil yeah. until the time was right yeah. and the king that was promised would come. And conveniently for Henry IV, then. that was now and him. Oh, so this is the bit of the game. No, this, no, that bit doesn't count. Now the bases have changed. This is the real game. Hmm. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Slightly less uh, grandiosely, uh, the Welsh historian William of Usk said that when the oil was poured over Henry's head, all the head lice ran out. Oh, my word. Oh, gosh, that's foul. Why has he got head lice? This is the king. I know. Well, he's he's only just got the holy oil, though, so... Or, I mean, what they've discovered there is lysertin, or whatever, (laughs) this unusually holy oil. (laughs) Where where have you been? You kept it somewhere nice and secure and... You open it up and it has that stench of ammonia or something like... (laughs) "Mm, This is God's doing. I'm just shocked he had... um, Maybe that's why he ended up with... uh, Horrific skin conditions and oh yeah. <laughs> uh, his son Henry V's coronation was carried out with any without any great notoriety other than the weather, 
Spanish snowing, snowing so heavily that the silken canopy which is held above his head for the procession had to be shaken several times. To oh, wow. Hang on. Do we have our first one then? Uh, yeah, that's fairly straightforward. Yeah. Was it Henry, Henry, the, Henry the Fourth was had the oil put on him by Archbishop of Canterbury? Yep. In Westminster Abbey? Yep. Henry V? Yep. Okay. Rest, Rex fact. <laughs> Uh, Henry V's son, Henry VI, has a rather more interesting experience of coronations, uh, and usually sitting through three of them. Oh. So the first one is Westminster Abbey, when he's seven years old, and thus seven years after he became king. Yeah. Second one is two years later in Notre Dame, when he becomes the only English monarch to be crowned King of France. Who are we talking about here? Sixth? Henry, Henry VI. VI, yeah. Mm. Uh, ironically, given that he's one of the weakest, yeah. ones, but... <laughs> And the third and final time is 1470, when he is restored to the English throne after being kicked off for ten years by Edward IV. And they feel like he needs another ceremony mm. to be like, yeah, king again. Yeah, yeah. So he, he could have done a, a fourth yeah. if he'd have got Edward IV. Yeah. Edward, yeah. Um, seems to have been a small affair organised by Warwick the Kingmaker, more for form's sake than anything else. <laughs> yeah, it's the second marriage. It's Charles yeah. the second marriage. But poor old Henry doesn't seem to have known what was going on. He was described as being a man amazed and utterly dulled with troubles and adversity. To be honest, he sounds like the perfect coronation audience. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, am, am I in this? I, thought oh, I, was just, I was just watching it. It's just so lovely, isn't it? It's so lovely. His life, to me, re- would read like... Uh, a sort of Midsummer Murders slash Daily Mail letter page where everything's <laughs> just isn't it so lovely <laughs> but he's also like it's so lovely I I tell you what though I would not want to swap places with whoever they are making king <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, your majesty we are yeah oh dear prior to this of course there was the coronation for the first Yorkist king Edward IV who overthrows Henry VI for the first time uh, in 1460 um, Henry VI had struggled a lot, lost, con- lost control of the Wars of the Roses. Um, so the accession of the very tall, very handsome 19-year-old Edward IV, who looks absolutely the ideal image of a king, um, makes for, I guess, a very impressive scene for his coronation. But it is also rather a rushed affair because he knows he's going to have to fight a battle against the Lancastrians to really... So does he get two as well? Uh, I don't know. Does he do a second one? I'm not sure if he bothers with the second one or not. Yeah. Um but a rather more spectacular coronation is thus uh, arranged for his queen when he marries Elizabeth Woodville. So that is that a big reason as to why he lavished so much on that coronation of her? Because that, that stoked up load of attention, didn't it? So partly, I guess it's an opportunity for him to do it because he didn't really yeah. get to do that for himself. It's also because it's a very controversial uh, marriage because she is the first Englishwoman and commoner to become a queen since 1066. And... Warwick and people are arranging marriages to French princesses, so it creates a huge maelstrom yeah. in English politics um, that does ultimately really lead to him being uh, deposed uh, for a year. Uh, but he does thus put a lot of emphasis on her mm. coronation, um, intends to emphasise what little lineage she does have on her mother's side to make it seem like mm. she's not an absolute nobody um, and to make sure that she looks like a queen. Mm. In contrast, their son, Edward V, never even has a coronation. Edward V. Only 12 years old, he's declared oh, yeah. illegitimate by his uncle, who then has himself crowned as King Richard III. Um, Edward V, the eldest of the two yeah. princes of the Tower, who then escapes. But he does count in the official who line. Who then escapes? Uh, not escapes, who then is never seen again. Complete opposite. Oh, <laughs> well, although or, Matthew... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Matt Lampre Lewis, or whatever it is. Matt Lampre. Lewis told you that they uh, they do escape, he reckons, so... 
Well, no, but the pretender is called something Lam- Lampton or something. Uh, uh, Lampton? There are two of them. It's Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. But he does ultimately count. The Tudors say, yep, he was definitely the legitimate king, Richard III of Zabadi. So he counts as Edward V, and that means that it is established that you can technically be king. Oh, yeah. And not have had a coronation. So that flips it right back. Yeah. <laughs> Crikey, okay. Well, it technically you can, but it's still seen as uh, as being pretty important. Tudors. Richard III's reign came to a sudden and very definitive end at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, and indeed the Plantagenet dynasty is displaced by the Tudors under King Henry VII. Now, according to legend, Richard uh, wore a crown into battle, and this was found uh, on a thorn bush and then placed on Henry's head mm. on the battlefield after the battle. Oh, I've got an image of a of a crown lying in some thorns. Mm. Is that, what is Henry Seventh? I don't know where I've seen that recently. Mm. I didn't realise that's what that was about. Okay. Very powerful and chivalric moment. Again, kind of a bit of a storybook style. Yeah. You know, on the battlefield. But Henry still feels he needs to do the actual coronation at Westminster Abbey. Yeah, definitely would. Um, he makes a slight innovation regarding the crown. Um, he wears it over the cap of a state, which is a velvet hat with a flattened top. Oh, is that where you start getting the... Um yeah, because they've got those inside still, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, because previously it was custom to wear this velvet cap and then take it off and then put the crown on. Yeah. Uh, but Henry, presumably for comfort, thought, you know, I'm just going to keep it on. Yeah. And now, of course, the crown has an internal velvet lining, so they've combined the two, but originally they were actually two different headpieces. The reign of Henry VIII was perhaps most disruptive in English history and has a major effect on the coronations of his three children who all succeed him. Mm. Ironically, his own coronation is actually rather more traditional and medieval yeah. in... Uh, I mean, he was in his more normal phase then, wasn't he? When he was 17 and (laughs) hadn't had a chance to go off. Yeah. Um, So he is a joint coronation with his new and first wife, Catherine (laughs) of Aragon. Um, He's on the cusp of turning 18, tall and handsome prince, quite similar to Edward IV, his grandfather. Um, His virtues are extolled by the likes of Thomas More and Erasmus. It's a time of great hope and optimism after the rather unpopular final years of Henry VII. Little did they know what Henry had in store. Yeah. He'll go on to have six wives, of course. So Anne Boleyn, the second of the six, is the only other one to get a coronation. Oh. So wives three to six, none of them are crowned. Yeah, makes sense, doesn't it, after a while? And she's indeed the last queen consort to have had a coronation in her own right. So obviously none of Henry's successors do that. And then the only other queen who becomes consort during the monarch's reign, i.e. they weren't already married to them before the mm. coronation, uh, is Catherine of Berganza. Charles II's queen, and he just doesn't bother. So they were married before he became king? So everybody else who comes afterwards, they're already married to the king when... Okay, and then she married... Okay. Because it's a nice bit of admin to get married beforehand to save the coronation costs. Yes. Good. Now, the first coronation that had to deal with the aftermath of Henry's chaotic uh, chaotic reign was, of course, his son, Edward VI. Now, while Henry VIII had broken from uh, Rome, he was, confusingly, not really a Protestant either. Mm. Edward VI, however, is full-blooded Protestant, so the coronation has to be altered accordingly. Mm. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, preaches against idolatry and the tyranny of the bishops of Rome. Mm. And while Edward is still anointed with holy oil, Cranmer was keen to stress that this was a purely symbolic act and asserted that Edward was God's anointed, not in respect of the oil which the bishop useth, but in consideration of their power which is ordained. The oil, if added, is but a ceremony. If it be wanting, 
the king is yet a perfect monarch. Yeah, I like it. They've gone so, almost all the way up there. So no, it, it was really just uh, it was it was just symbolism. <laughs> it's it's actually just just real thing. It's just now we just yeah. have to believe it. Outside of this, the coronation still has all the traditional pageantry. Edward is uh, nine years old and apparently most captivated by a Spanish acrobat who performed a dazzling display of rope dancing gliding down from the top of St Paul's Cathedral to the ground. Oh, wow. Less enamoured of some other aspects and he was observed to spur on his horse to escape the approach of an old man dressed as Edward the Confessor who was about to deliver a long ode in Latin. <laughs> what? And he didn't know it was going to happen? No, and then he sees it coming and thinks, nope. Yeah, not having any <laughs> There's an acrobat on the top of St Paul's. Yeah, God, how brilliant. So it was a, like, it was a fun event, it seems. Yeah, always this huge display of, you know, yeah. theatre and pageantry and everything going on. I suppose this current one is meant to be fun. It doesn't strike me as much fun, though. They keep banging no. about a concert at... We, we don't have all the pageants and all that sort of stuff. No. But I guess you could say, you know, the, um, the, the big concerts they have is sort of like... Yeah, and the street parties, they... that sort of thing. Yeah, Edward the sixth dies in fifteen fifty three when he's uh, only fifteen years old, and the wheel turns again because the next in line is his elder sister Mary, who is oh, as yeah. avowedly Catholic as Edward is Protestant. Uh, Mary overcomes a Protestant coup to put her cousin Lady Jane Grey on the throne, but then she needs to be crowned queen. But that presents something of a challenge because she is going to return the country to Catholicism, mm. Counter Reformation, but legally country's still Protestant uh-huh. and Parliament doesn't meet until after the coronation so she can't pass any laws making it all Catholic why does she wait till after the Parliament well no but the Parliament's waiting for the coronation oh. <laughs> so she can't have the Parliament she to make the country Catholic without she... having the ceremony which is still Protestant <laughs> okay so it's a bit of an awkward one for her. So she does what she can to mitigate the worst of it, uh, as she would see it. So she adds to the oath her commitment to uphold the just and licit laws. Yeah, well, yeah. Caveat over to which laws. Uh, and she omits as much from the services possible that she would have found offensive. But she's still concerned about this. Um, so she uh, writes to Cardinal Pole, who she will later make Archbishop of Canterbury, asking for absolution for herself and other loyal Catholics for taking part in the ceremony. Yeah. It'd be hard, no? She's essentially a different, I mean, a different religion. Yeah. But uh, really, the the difference was so stark back in the day. Mm. Outside of this, the coronation is notable because it is the first time we have an English queen regnant crowned. I, she is the ruling oh, yeah. monarch, not the wife mm. of a king. Uh, despite it being so significant, though, we don't have an English publication covering the ceremony in any great detail, so we rely on Italian and Spanish accounts to know what happened. Why? Well, I guess perhaps because she's embarrassed that she's the Catholic queen who's crowned in the oh, ceremony. Of so yeah, they yeah. want to sort of quieten that down a little don't bit. Don't put that camera away. Can't put that. Come on. <laughs> uh, but she does a lot of traditional stuff, processes through London in a chariot with her younger sister Elizabeth and her last surviving stepmother Anne of Cleves following behind. Mm. One area where she does follow her brother was being impressed by some daredevil acrobatics laid on this time by Peter the Dutchman. Mm hmm who made two scaffolds upon the top of Paul's steeple, St. Paul's, mm. the one upon the ball thereof and the other upon the top thereof above that, and he himself standing upon the very top or back of the weathercock to the great marvel and wondering of all the people which beheld him, because it was thought a matter impossible. He stood at the top. So literally, very, 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 very top. Wow. You definitely get some morons trying to copy that (laughs) (laughs) five years later though Mary is dead and it's all change again because her sister Elizabeth a Protestant ascends to what is now a Catholic throne oh gosh of course exact same problem in reverse 
So what does she do? Well, it's a little bit harder for her. Firstly, she's got to find someone who can crown her. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Reginald Pole, died hours after Mary, so there isn't an Archbishop of Canterbury. Really? That's quite sweet they were close. Yeah. Um, and the rest of them are avowedly Catholic and basically not willing to do it. And she's not going to get any revenge on them because she's promised not to look into men's hearts and all that. Mm, and also she doesn't need somebody to do it. So yeah. she eventually persuades Owen Oglethorpe, who is the lowly Bishop of Carlisle. Wow. Apologies to Carlisle, but still that's quite a... Well, I just a, never, didn't know they had one. <laughs> well, yeah, it's quite a, quite a promotion. Um, and that's despite the fact that she'd relatively recently stormed out of a service he conducted when he refused to admit the elevation of the host, which is a very Catholic bit of the process that she told him not to do. But still, beggars can't be choosers. He refused to admit it. Hmm. Um, so and she stormed out. But this was after she was queen? Uh, it's after she's queen, but before the coronation. coronation. Wow, what a brave fellow. And gosh, so she really didn't have anyone. Why? Because it was Catholic. Because Mary's made everyone Catholic again. So he agrees to do it. They have a bit of a compromise whereby when he does the mass, it's timed in such a way that Elizabeth can temporarily withdraw to St. Edward's Chapel so she doesn't have to witness him doing the transubstantiation bit. Oh, that's good. Um, but so it is the last Catholic mass at uh, an English coronation. The last one in Latin, barring one exception later, which we'll explain. And it's effectively the last Catholic coronation. Okay. Yeah, very or, some of that mysticism. Mm, albeit good. the Catholic bishops don't attend. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, indeed, the temporal peers give their homage before all of the religious ones. And so, but there were no Protest- um, Catholics at the Protest- Protestant one before that. <laughs> oh, what a pickle they've all got themselves yeah. in, where the only, only Protestants can go to Catholic masses. <laughs> Still, the main thing is Elizabeth was crowned, and she could be pragmatic about the service because she understands that whilst the ceremony is necessary, it's only seen by the elite few, she needs the support of the entire nation en masse, and that will be secured in the procession through the streets of London. And this is where Elizabeth really excels, because she's got this innate ability to really connect with her audience in such occasions. Uh, Sir John Hayward wrote of her at the time. If ever any person had either the gift or the style to win the heart of the people, it was this queen. All her faculties were in motion, and every motion seemed a well-guided action. Her eye was set upon one, her ear listened to another, her judgment ran upon a third, to a fourth she addressed her speech, her spirit seemed to be everywhere. Yeah, but she's good at that. Uh, Spent £16,000 of her own money on the possession and pageantry, and usually she forbade foreign merchants from contributing anything. So it's a very English Mm. feeling affair, which again is to contrast her sister who married the King of Spain. Um, And it's probably the high point of the coronation possession, a genuine outpouring of celebration and connection between people and sovereign it feels like that should be a high point but I, f- I also feel like after talking to susan doran she probably wasn't able to enjoy it that much was concentrating on being elizabeth mm. a performer mm. hola hello this call is being translated abuela listen to what my phone can do Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Stuarts. After three coronations in the space of just 12 years, Elizabeth's long reign means that we have nearly half a century till the next coronation. Mm. Uh, and we have a new dynasty, of course, with the Stuarts. So James I of England, 6th of Scotland, uh, was, like Elizabeth, a Protestant. And he feels that the coronation service needs uh, a bit of an update, given, particularly given that Elizabeth's one was Catholic. Yeah, and he's now king of both parts. Does so? Is he celebrating both Scotland. in that? No, he's already been crowned king of Scots. Okay. Uh, well, a long time ago, actually. Um, so it gets updated. The Liber Regalis, the royal book, is translated into English for the first time. Good. It's got English uh, service. Um, most of the ceremony is the coronation oath is still done in Latin, English, and French, as he's still claiming to be king of France. Of course, yeah. Um, he had some qualms about the anointing because he thought of that being quite a Catholic sort of thing yeah. to do, but he ultimately decided that probably it couldn't really be omitted. So what doesn't hurt, does it? Yeah. Gets rid of the license. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and he's not into a lot of that spells and bells stuff, James, as a good Protestant. So he also denies the claim that the king's touch could cure, uh, cure scrofula, remarking the age of the miracles is past. Oh, good man. Uh, that said, he does believe in the divine right of kings. Well, you've got to take, take, take what you can out of it, can't you? And he sees the coronation oath as a pledge to God rather than his subjects. Oh. Um, and the Stuart trait that will ultimately bring about the downfall of the dynasty under his successor, Charles I. Mm. Now, there are plenty of ill omens and indications that Charles wouldn't be a successful uh, ruler from his coronation. Um, the Venetian secretary pondered whether Charles would even have a coronation, such mm. as his belief in the divine rule of kings. Men talk of the possibility of his majesty not being crowned so as to remain more absolute, avoiding the obligation to swear to the laws and without the discontent of his subjects. The parliament men would wish for this observance as without it they would consider their laws at the discretion of the king and not dependent upon the general public authority. So he's, um, he's, he's thinking he's the big I am. He's thinking, do I really need a coronation? I just am God's anointed king already. I don't need any of this nonsense. Well, I, I, I mean, I get where he's coming from, but for, I, am, I do approach it from a slightly different angle. <laughs> yes. You can see why Parliament thinks. We feel it's quite important in that bit where you are crowned on the proviso that you will uphold the law. Yeah. Look, can I just say that bit? <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's interesting, that point we made, going all the way back to Dunstan and the difference in the English system, it is seen as being a very important bit yeah. that does place a requirement on the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coronation does go ahead, but proves the troubled beast. Uh, James had been forced to forego the usual pomp and pageantry due to an outbreak of uh, plague. Oh, so it's quite a small procession. Uh, in Charles's case, um, he blames the plague, but basically he just doesn't want one. Mm. Probably because he was worried that people 
didn't actually like him very much at all. Oh, that's not nice, is it? Um, his wife, Henrietta Maria, is staunchly Catholic, which isn't very... Pro- uh, very Well, it isn't very Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not very popular. Why, how did they get on? They kind of got on. Well, he's quite high church, Charles. Okay. Um, and indeed, she's so Catholic that not only does she refuse to be crowned in this Protestant ceremony, she refuses to attend at all. Oh, wow. Uh, and there are rumours that she is seen to be mocking the whole affair mm. when it's going on. So none of that goes down very well. Uh, but he runs into other difficulties. There were some doubts over whether the Archbishop of Canterbury was fit to do the service, as some believed he became uncanonical when he accidentally killed one of Charles's gamekeepers whilst hunting. <laughs> it is not, uh, it's rather uncanonical, isn't <laughs> it? Just, it, 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 it may be many things. <laughs> uncanonical is definitely one of them. No red or purple velvet could be found for Charles's robe, so he came to the coronation dressed in white satin. God. Which is considered an unlucky colour, because it's uh, associated with sacrificial victims, so Charles becomes known as the White King. Charles I mm. went in, like, a toga, a white toga. <laughs> so I can see that. Mm. During the ceremony, there was, for some reason, a bemused silence when everyone was meant to declare their allegiance to him. So the Earl of Arundel had to step forward and tell everyone to shout, God save the king! <laughs> now shout, God save the king. You know, what's coming out of this is, re- is rehearsal, this key. Oh, well, why? Just, let's wait till we get to the Hanoverians. <laughs> yeah, why didn't they rehearse? Well, because it's, it's one of those things where I guess actually, to be fair, you can absolutely see this because it's something that they don't do very often. And the only time they remember they need to do it differently is the point at which it happens. They go, oh, <laughs> yeah, next yeah. time I really need to remember. And they're different people. And then it's different people. <laughs> yeah. 50 years later, everyone's forgotten. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, a precious stone also was said to fall out of the coronation ring, which is obviously a bit of an omen. Mm. Um, most ominously of all, soon after the service finished, London was rocked by an earthquake. Weird. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's going to have all everyone rattled. Yeah. Uh, and the alignments are appropriate because Charles ultimately leads England <laughs> into a civil war in which the Sorry. monarchy is abolished and he is executed in 1649. Uh, so we have a republic now. The monarchy is gone. And with Cromwell's uh, Oliver Cromwell's Republic short on cash, the crown jewels are all sold off or melted down into metal. Yeah, who's going to buy that? You don't have any shakes kicking around in those days. Uh, well, it's not. Um, it's it's just sort of some gold and oh, just and melted stuff and sold on the cr- the crowns etc. Are melted down into gold. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are some bits and bobs that turn up later. Like a few swords of the state and stuff are come back, but most of it is melted down. So that means Charles has the last coronation with the uh, traditional regalia, which is now considered symbolic of the detestable rule of kings. Wow. And the only surviving item proper item is the uh, medieval silver gilt anointing spoon oh I think I remember that from going to see the crown jewels yeah, yeah. it's probably made for Henry II or Richard I um, so my, I'm not sure if it was originally made to be the anointing spoon but it's a spoon and it's all we've got so <laughs> <laughs> they found an old spoon and <laughs> tried to make up a story around it what Which, on earth to be fair, did it's an- appropriate for how the ceremony develops yeah it? yeah an anointing spoon yeah so that's what they got the anointing oil out of the anointing pot yes with now, Oliver Cromwell is later offered the crown as they struggle to make a new system of government work. And while he declined the defunct crown, he does have a virtual coronation for his second investiture as Lord Protector. And this, as I said earlier, was in Westminster Hall rather than the Abbey. So although he doesn't have any crown jewels, he's got to have something to make it feel a bit more important. So that's why they just drag the yeah. chair 
from okay. the Abbey to the Hall. Makes sense, and if you haven't got any jewels, just it's just all symbolism in the, mm. at the end of the day. And you know, he's he's well up for saying about how he conquers the Scots and stuff. So you know, it's not all bad. Yeah, he's a, he's an Edward fan. However, in 1660, the monarchy is brought back with Charles II and the Restoration. And uh, with everything having been previously cancelled on the royal front, with Charles, the traditional dial is turned back up to 11. <laughs> but there's a large gap to fill. Royal regalia has been destroyed. There's not been a grand procession in the city since 1604, and that was a bit of a damp squib yeah. due to the plague. No coronation banquet since 1559. Uh? Uh, but with Charles, it's all back, literally back on the table. Uh, they made a decision to refashion the crown jewels based on the old records that they have. So they tried to use the same designs and even the same names. Okay. So that's why we do now still have St. Edward's crown as the main crown. Yeah. But it's it's based on and named after the old one, but it dates to 1660 rather than 1060. Now, these days, um, or rather 20th century life has... 21st, if you will. <laughs> or stretching back then... Uh, has allowed the RE's of living has allowed enthusiasts mm-hmm. enthusiasts to um, percolate and simmer away mm. in their back gardens mm. in their sheds whatever I'm one um, so I've no doubt that there's the knowledge out there somewhere of what the current crown looks like yes and we do have, know what the current crown looks like yeah and they'd be if if we had a disaster they could some bod out there would know all about it and they'd be able to pick, put it all back together and picture how do they know what it looked like then well, they they had some drawings of it. Ironically, actually, they they had they did do an inventory of the royal of the crown jewels for Charles the first. So they did actually take it stock of all the royal That's regalia lucky, isn't it? just before, yeah. And a drawing in case you had a revolution. I feel like they have some drawings. Um, so some of them are probably look as close as they could look to what it was before. I think others probably are quite different. Probably went with the times. That's fancy bit there. Yeah, yeah, a bit more baroque in taste. Uh, but yeah, so the crown jewels that we see today, the crowns we see today, has got all the same names as the old ones, but they're mm. a few hundred years old rather than a thousand. Have, have you ever seen the crown jewels? Because I remember being, I, I think it's just always disappointing, not because they're not spectacular, but uh, when I was little, I think I wanted like a helmet with a crown on it, like Henry V, <laughs> you imagine. Uh, and so it's not quite knighty enough. Yes, it looks a bit too... It's a bit too plush and yeah, uh, um, but at the same time, gosh, hmm. I almost think weird because like, what I do remember because it's the crown jewels, which is a lot of crown jewels. It's not yeah. just the crown that they wear. I mean, even, in fact, they wear several crowns in the coronation ceremony. It's not just an Edward's <laughs> so crown. Silly. Um, I suspect partly it's just because it's very big and heavy. It's yeah, Edward's crown. They can't wear it for very long. Um, but it's almost too much actually to be impressive. It'd be weirdly be more impressive if it was like just. If it built up to the crown. I completely agree. You remember Just a big room and it's at the end. Yeah. Yeah. We've really struggled in um, the... uh, When I was doing that exhibition on Colombian gold at Mm. the British Museum to make... uh, To keep pace of the exhibition because once you're immediately struck by a tiny piece of incredibly intricate filigree metalwork on this uh, sacred uh, ocelot (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) And... 40 minutes later, once you're in the third, fourth, fifth room, yeah. you're seeing a very small <laughs> filigree pattern of a leopard. Um, yeah, it does lose it. You get snow, you get gold blindness. Yeah. Less is more, I think, is the, uh, is, the, um, yeah. is, the, is the lesson from all of this. 
the procession into London is back, uh, and it probably is comparable to uh, the only one comparable to the sort of fervour of Elizabeth's coronation, because yeah. like her, Charles very much a natural in front of the crowd and appealing to the mm. people, knowing how to behave and how to sort to say it. Actually. He's totally winking at the crowd, finger, hey, this guy, all right, yes, <laughs> I'll call you. <laughs> oh, give me a hug, hug of that baby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there's a similar sense that after a period of instability that peace and uh, yeah. order is all coming back. Uh, the diarist Samuel Pepys observed that so glorious was the show with gold and silver that we were not able to look at it, our eyes at last being so much overcome with it. Yeah. Um, gold blindness. Yeah. Um, that said, he was less impressed with the actual ceremony because <laughs> uh, Pepys was very into his music and he complained that there was so great a noise that I could make but little of the music. Oh, really? I, so it's not this sort of hushed Victorian thing? Yeah, exactly. It implies the crowds are rather more boisterous than we might imagine for a formal ceremony. Also, he's got all these accounts of people like they take their own food in and sort of little picnics. Oh, that's more uh, my cup of tea. Having inside. Um, same is true of the coronation banquet. Where Peeps recorded, um, I went from table to table to see the bishops and all others at their dinner. So it implies almost sort of this kind of grand buffet where everyone's just wandering around chatting to who they can get hold of. More of a networking event. Uh, and Charles's coronation, though, is something of an apotheosis for the medieval coronation because it's the last time we'll have that grand ceremonial entry into the city. Why? James II perhaps wanted to be frugal or because he's a Catholic, he's worried that nobody really wants him to be king. So true. Best not to be yeah. shown how unpopular <laughs> he is. William and Mary uh, is usurpers again in a rush to be crowned, so can't be doing with all that mm. faff. Um, so he just sort of, it just sort of then hasn't happened for a while. Um, Charles also represents an end to Scottish coronations. Now, the Scottish ceremony at Schoon had a longer tradition than that of uh, the English one, or a continuous tradition. Uh, but we had the Union of the Crowns in 1603, so the monarchy is now almost permanently based in England. Now, Charles I did go to Scotland for a coronation as King of Scots in 1633, but Charles is the last one to be crowned King of Scots in a ceremony at Schoon without the stone, um, but actually before he becomes King of England, because it's 1651 when he goes on to launch an unsuccessful invasion of England. And that's where he has him. Who does? Charles. So that's when Cromwell is on the, not on the throne, but when Cromwell is in charge, Charles tries to come back, and that's where we have him running around the country, hiding up in oak trees and dressing up. I thought that's just him leaving the first time when his dad goes No, he comes back, tries to get the throne back. So he starts in Scotland, is crowned King of Scots, comes down to England, defeated... Anyway, after Charles II, it was his brother, James II. Many nobles tried to prevent him becoming king on account of his being Catholic. Um, and his coronation wouldn't have done anything to uh, change people's opinions. He actually has himself and his wife crowned in a secret private ceremony by a Catholic bishop. I was going to say, wasn't it secret that he was Catholic at all? Not secret, no. So there's a, an attempt to have him taken out of the succession before he becomes king. Oh. So he has a private Catholic coronation ceremony with uh, special oil blessed by a Catholic bishop sent by Louis the Fourteenth of France <laughs> so that he can go through what for him is the charade of the actual Protestant ceremony with a clear conscience. Oh, yeah. Of course. Because he's like, la da 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 doesn't count, already done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one innovation was a new crown for his queen, Mary of Modena, because, as I said, Charles doesn't bother to get his wife crowned. Yeah. So when they were remaking all the regalia, they didn't have a crown for the queen. One size fits all. Mm, so Mary of Modena is the first new crown mm. for a queen consort. Uh, someone else who may have felt pride that day was Samuel Pepys. So we noted how he's just wandering around picking up food at Charles's coronation, but this time he bore the front left pole of the canopy that's held above James as he goes into Westminster Abbey for his crowning. So he's actually he's right there 
the heart of things, Peeps, with that coronation. Oh, I don't know. I can feel myself going against him now. I what, don't peeps know. or James? Peeps. <laughs> well, I, he does it. He works with James quite a lot. He's quite, quite I close know, to James, but right? he's just there complaining about stuff with his trotters up, snuffling around the camemberts in the <laughs> coronation. I don't know. don't know about him now. <laughs> <laughs> for James himself, however, the experience was rather less positive. Um, he wore a crown made for his brother in 1660, but Charles had a very large head. <laughs> so James apparently spent most of the ceremony just holding onto it so it wouldn't fall off. Oh. As if that was not portentous enough, the fact that his crown doesn't yeah. want to stay on his head for the coronation. Yeah. Uh, when the champion came to kiss James's hand at the banquet, uh, he fell, the champion, rather dramatically uh, to the floor, and his armour was so weighty that several people had to come over to help him back <laughs> up onto his feet. Oh, dear. It's so silly. Because <laughs> also, of course, we're sort of beyond, because it's the same family. We're, we're, I don't know why that's the tradition. Of, well, I do, because people want their privileges. But rather than it being like, who is the greatest knight in the land? It's it was always money. just, it's this family. Yeah. And it switched at one point. So it did switch to the Dimmock family after a couple of hundred years because of the other line ran out. But so it's not that this family is particularly battly or anything. Well, clearly. So, well, exactly. <laughs> the first and only time level one so far. Massively overweight <laughs> on a pony or something. Now, James II only lasts uh, a few years before being overthrown in the glorious revolution of 1688, usurped by his own daughter, Mary II, and her husband, William III, who ruled together as joint monarchs. Mm. Um, now, although James had been highly unpopular, it's still very controversial to depose a monarch, so the Archbishop of Canterbury actually refused to crown them, feeling that he owed his loyalty to James, even though he was a staunch Protestant and James was Catholic. Oh, wow, that's a tricky position to hold. So John Evelyn noted that much of the splendour of the ceremony was abated by the absence of diverse who should have contributed to it. There were but five bishops and four judges. No more had taken the oaths. Because? Because they think we all made oaths three years ago to this person as king. However, the Bishop of London was one of the immortal seven. Uh, who they were the seven people who sort of basically invited William to invade. Mm. So he was obviously more than happy to conduct the ceremony himself. Um, in the absence of the bishops, the entirety of the House of Commons attended. Oh, first time. Uh, and this, of course, was also the first joint coronation of two monarchs. So it created some logistical issue because obviously they need the same regalia, but there's only one of everything. Yeah, you need. Um, <coughs> well, what we were saying with recording, you need two of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you do. Perhaps indicative of who would really be the senior partner in the relationship, William gets all the originals. Albeit oh. only 20 years old, these originals. Mm. Uh, whilst copies are made for Mary, including the coronation chair, they make a mm. copy just for her to sit on. Well, that's nice. William is also first to be anointed. Oh. Even though technically she is yeah. senior. But just no, mm. you know, winkle. Mm. Well, and also they, William is the one that's overthrown James for them, so they do kind of have to... <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, while free from any catastrophic errors, there were a couple of awkward moments in the coronation uh, ceremony for them. Uh, there was a tradition to make an offering, mm. a little, you know, just 20 guineas. The purse was presented, but they then found it didn't have anything in it. <laughs> Neither William nor Mary nor indeed the Lord Chamberlain had any money on no the No cash. So they're just frantically going around for someone to put some money just in. Drop a ring in or something. Eventually, uh, one, uh, one Lord Danby was able to make the payment on their behalf. And from there is where we get uh, the Danelys <laughs> always being the Chancellor of the Exchequer. More intriguingly, the uh, champion, Sir Charles Dimmock, turned up uh, two hours late. 
Um, but when he did eventually ceremonially fling his gauntlet down as a challenge to anyone who would question their right to rule, um, a little old lady on crutches picked up the gauntlet and replaced it with a lady's glove containing a letter answering the challenge, specifying a place in Hyde Park for a duel the following day. No. So it's the first time that the duel's ever actually been... Good for her. What happened? Um, a well-built stranger was seen lurking near the appointed spot the following day, but uh, Dimmick didn't show up. And it just didn't... Nothing happened. He sort of just totally failed in his role? Well, yes, or I suppose maybe succeeded in that he's thinking, I think the best way is if I just don't turn up at all. Because if I do turn up and they kill me, that does kind of imply that you don't have a right to rule. Yeah, well, they made the rules. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it's one of those symbolic moments. Like, oh, we didn't actually ever imagine anyone would. Uh, oh, this is awkward. Um, yeah, it reminds me of when uh, uh, a friend of mine was made head boy, and this allowed him to smoke a pipe in <laughs> prep, which actually, when acted upon wasn't allowed at all it turned <laughs> out it was even in our um, almanacs that these were the privileges of the yeah. boy but not not to be like when you know freedom of the city where people have the right to drive sheep sheep through yeah yeah, yeah. Hanoverians the Stuart reign came to an end with Queen Anne and the fervently Protestant outlook which is something made very clear in Anne's coronation oaths which very explicitly states the opposition to the Catholic faith right um, this means that the throne now passes to the Hanoverian dynasty because they have to skip over quite a lot of more senior Catholic figures. Well, so Anne's had one though, right? Anne has her coronation, yeah. but after she dies, they don't just go to the next person in line. It has to be a prostitute. Yeah. So they skip out lots and lots of people, which is why we end up with George I becoming king in 1714. Oh, yes. Because previously they just have used Catholics even though it was closer to the Great Divide, mm. the Great Schism. Yeah, but now you have to be Protestant legally to be king. Oh, it feels like that's a backward step, isn't it? It's just confusing. Mm. So, well, I guess it's clear in the sense that they, for the first time, have a really a rule, at least, yeah. succession. But it's... Mm. So George I becomes king as a German... Uh, Hanoverian, he doesn't speak English, uh, meaning that the only common language between George and the clergy is Latin. Oh. And thus, for the only time, one last time it's brought back, the text of the service is once again Latin so that they all the key people can understand it. This is, And once again, <laughs> it, it's like when you had the Protestant Queen having to do a Catholic service <laughs> and vice versa. Now you skip all of those people just to find a... Protestant, and you have to do the thing in Latin. Because he's so far distant, he can't speak any English. <laughs> oh, it's... I'm loving this. I, it's, it's a, the whole thing's a ruddy they shambles. They put in place all these rules, and then they don't they make those consequences, and it's like, oh, right, okay, right, we need a new rule. <laughs> yeah. It, I promise, this is like playing with my son. <laughs> you know, whenever a problem comes up, just make up a new rule, it doesn't matter. And I'm actually like, can we just play the game? <laughs> yeah. We've got that at the, mer- at the moment with Nerf guns. Every time one's... Uh, Bullets fired, he goes, T, 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 let's collect the bullets. And, oh. 1727, George II comes to the throne. His coronation is a very important landmark in uh, the ceremony uh, because whilst the form remains the same, the sound of the coronation changes forever because George appoints the recently naturalised composer, George Friedrich Handel, to compose four new anthems Here we for the go. ceremony. Um, it's a surprising choice for a couple of reasons. For one, the natural choice would have been the composer of the Chapel Royal, mm. uh, Maurice Green. But for another, Handel had been the favourite composer of George I, with whom George II has a very strained relationship. Mm. But clearly, such is Handel's talent that he's able to overlook that. 
He's got a handle on it all. Hey. <laughs> Uh, the Archbishops of Canterbury and York are concerned that a former foreigner should be entrusted with choosing biblical texts himself and trying to take a lead. But didn't they know who the king is? Uh, well, they accept that he's going to do the music, but they think, I think maybe, maybe we could help him with choosing which texts. I don't know if he really knows and understands. Okay. Uh, but ha- Handel curtly responded to this offer, I have read my Bible very well and shall choose for myself. Yeah. And indeed, one of the texts Handel chooses to set to music is Zadok the Priest. That's, it's just epic, isn't it? Love Huge it. piece of music. Featured, as we said, in every coronation in terms of the words. Even some have already set it to music, but never as spectacularly as this. And, of mm. course, his rousing score goes down a storm and has been used every coronation since. It's a powerful, transcendent piece. It does seem to perfectly match the majesty of what they're trying to do with the yeah. coronation ceremony. Um, it's also will be familiar to football fans as essentially being the UEFA Champions League anthem. Yeah. Though in researching this, I found that the composer, Tony Britton, claims a little bit more authorship than people might... uh, I bet he does, but listen to the music. There's a rising string phrase which I pinched from Handel, and then I wrote my own tune. It has a kind of Handelian feel to it, but I like to think it's not a total (laughs) (laughs) rip-off. I like to think it's as good whilst being all my own work. (laughs) (laughs) Narrator. It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it's a good tune, but we know why. It's a great tune, but it is definitely handles on. Zadok the Priest could actually have been a, a one coronation wonder, because at George III's coronation in 1761, William Boyce, master of the King's music, seems to have mistakenly, thinking, uh, mistakenly thought that his role in overseeing the music required him to rewrite every single piece of music for the ceremony. God, he must have put himself under such stress <laughs> thinking he had to suddenly be Handel. Yeah. But the only exception he made was for Zadok the Priest, which he said cannot be more properly set than it has already been by Mr. Handel. Yeah, you should have taken that approach to the rest of it, because <laughs> honestly, Kingy Kingy, your shiny star is a crown <laughs> in the sky. Didn't quite have the same ring to it. Uh, Zadok the Priest is probably a rare highlight uh, for George's coronation, because this will be one of the most calamitous in English history. Third? George the Third, yes. Which one's he? Uh... Mad King. Oh, Mad King, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, America, yeah. What, what? Uh, the Mad... The Mad... The man in charge, Lord Effingham, who isn't being executed, uh, fortunate perhaps, uh, starts on the wrong foot by forgetting both the Sword of State and the canopy under which George and his new Queen Charlotte are meant to possess. God, I mean, they've... they've all of these people have quite serious roles in this. <laughs> yes. Are all populated by people with the skill set of mine. Yes. Uh, it caused a huge delay until eventually they borrow a sword from the Lord Mayor of London and just have to improvise a canopy. Sadly, I wasn't able to find out exactly how they do that. Yeah, a capper jacket, presumably, or something. <laughs> Everything is so under-rehearsed that there were several long pauses where nobody knew what was meant to happen next. <laughs> when it came to the communion, George asked the Archbishop of Canterbury whether he should remove his crown first, uh, but neither the Archbishop nor the Dean of Westminster or various others had any ideas, and in the end, George had decided to remove it. It felt right. Queen Charlotte tried to do so as well, but found her crown had got stuck into her hair, and so she couldn't actually take it off during the ceremony at all. Oh, my Lord. At one point, Charlotte struck, uh, snuck off to visit her retiring chamber, hmm. i.e. a toilet made for her convenience in St. Edward's Chapel. Uh, but when she got there, she found it was already being frequented by the Duke of Newcastle, who was the Prime Minister. Oh, God. So the Duke... She goes... So the Queen pops off during the ceremony to go to the toilet. I mean, let's not elaborate as to what either of them are doing, mm. but she finds... The Prime Minister. The Prime Minister. On her toilet. 
and there's a 50-50 chance he's doing the worst of those two actions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I definitely thought you were going to say she couldn't get all of her bustly stuff Oh, off. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this toilet is just in the middle of the Lady Chapel. It's an Edwards Chapel. It's an Edwards Chapel, yeah. so there's acoustics. <laughs> oh, yes. Beautiful acoustics <laughs> was reverberating. The whole thing is absolutely... Uh, uh, it's been planned by a moron. One witness, James Henning, wrote that the whole was confusion, irregularity the and what? disorder. <laughs> uh, unfortunately things don't improve when they make it to the coronation banquet uh, the Lord Steward William Talbot who is uh, overseeing this was a boxing enthusiast and he was noted <laughs> for his swaggering manners and rude demeanour oh. less so organising uh, important state events such as a banquet not really in his wheelhouse he forgot to, v- to provide tables for notable guests such as the Barons of the Sinkports and the Aldermen of London and when they started to get rowdy he only managed to get them to quiet down by challenging them all to a duel they really need to discover um, like the p- planning as a, as a skill set in itself <laughs> and, and a job because these people that might be good drinking buddies <laughs> cannot or, uh, organise a, a knees up in a what you know <laughs> now Talbot does have one more ace up his sleeve to try to impress the king etiquette demands that you never turn your back on royalty oh, so yeah. He'd spent hours and hours training his horse to walk backwards so that even on horseback he could still observe proper etiquette. Oh, he couldn't wait to show this off, could he? Unfortunately, he trained the horse so well that every time he tried to enter Westminster Hall, the horse would only do so if it was walking backwards, thus presenting rump first to the king. (laughs) Oh, that's... Yeah, they didn't incorporate that in their no, yeah. I mean, <laughs> One witness what bemoaned the terrible indecorum, though in most cases his bottom first entrances were just met with increasingly hysterical laughter. Oh good, well at least no one lost their head. All in all, the whole affair was uh, something of a shambles, and the only person to emerge with any credit was George himself. And the horse. Well, the horse yeah. did very well, poor bloke. Catherine Talbot observed that George had much patience and good humour in bearing their numerous mistakes and stupidities as quickness and attention in setting them right. I really like that man. Afterwards, he does complain to Lord Effingham about everything that went wrong, to which Effingham cheekily replied... It is true, sir, that there has been some neglect, but I have taken care that the next coronation shall be regulated in the exactest manner possible. No, no. I, do, I went to make a, a friend invited me to their wedding <laughs> this, uh, the other day of a text. Um, it was very nice. It very blatantly said uh, some family have cancelled, which is like the spot. Couldn't make it. And um, Sarah replied, I'm really sorry, we've got uh, my dad's 80th, but I'll see you at the next one. <laughs> yeah. I did no reply. <laughs> Well, George was highly amused by the retort, so much so that he made Effingham repeat it several times when they were in company. We would have got on. <laughs> now, when George III died in 1820, after a sorry decade of being locked away when his mental faculties failed him, uh, his son George IV is delighted to finally become king after a decade as Prince Regent. He had hoped to be crowned that summer, but was forced to delay for a year due to the complex legal proceedings he was taking against his wife, Caroline of Brunswick, <laughs> whom he ultimately failed to divorce. Yeah. So when it came to the coronation, he was determined she would not attend, so he simply just decides not to invite her. I mean, yeah, that's the only reasonable... That, however, is not to... That is to reckon, however, without her determination to upstage him. She writes to the Prime Minister to inquire as to what arrangements had been made for her, only to be told that it was not His Majesty's pleasure to compel with the application. Uh, okay. Undeterred, she makes her own way back from the continent, where she's been staying, lands with great fanfare at Dover Castle, and is fated by crowns all the way to London. 
She's still queen, right? She, oh, yes. It's, George is trying to deny it, but... She's able to be there. She gets herself there. Uh, but when she gets to Westminster Abbey, she finds all of the doors are shut. Uh, George has hired prize fighters as doorkeepers. <laughs> possibly because he was worried about his own reputation but possibly just for his wife (laughs) Uh, and door after door is locked eventually she comes to Poet's Corner um, where it's open but there's a guard there and he tells her it is my duty to announce to you your majesty that there is no place in the abbey prepared for you eventually she gives in at this point the crowds turn on her and she is uh, widely booed as she makes her departure and sadly dies two weeks later of what? I don't know actually Oh, we'll find out. <laughs> we we'll get, we'll we, get when, you, when you listen to Rex Factor, you'll find out. This would have been of some relief to George, as in contrast to the previous coronation, a lot of planning has gone into this ceremony. An unprecedented exhibition of opulence and pageantry in which George is seeking to outshine Napoleon's coronation as Emperor of France. What year is this? Uh, 1820. Uh, he even sent a tailor to Paris to study Napoleon's robes. Hmm. As such, George IV is the most expensive coronation in history. So, for a little bit of context, George the Fourth, uh, George the First's coronation cost a little over seven thousand mm. pounds, uh, which in twenty seventeen money is about seven hundred sixty five thousand. Well, that's good. George the Second spent uh, over eight and a half thousand, which is about a million. Yeah. George the Third spent about nine and a half thousand pounds, so that's about nine hundred sixty five thousand. George the Fourth spent two hundred thirty eight thousand pounds, which is the equivalent to about thirteen and a half million in twenty seventeen. Gosh, I mean, that's still good value, but what an increase on the time before. That is a lot of money. Yeah. The costs uh, are mainly met by £100,000 of government funds and also 100 million francs as war reparations. And a lot of money, as you can imagine, for George goes on costumes. Uh, Apparently seven men are required to hold the nine yards of uh, George's heavy and magnificent train of crimson velvet, Mm. below which he's got an Elizabethan-style sort of tight-fitting white satin suit. Fancy. Also got a black Spanish hat decked with white ostrich feathers and a heron's plume. (laughs) Um, It's very heavy, though, and it was a very hot day, and it all proves a bit overwhelming for George. He was seen perspiring throughout this day. At one point, had to be revived with smelling salts. Oh, my gosh. Because he's quite a portly gentleman. Yeah, covered in velvet in summer. Yes. Um... And it wasn't helped when there was a misunderstanding with the canopy that goes above him. George had decided he should walk in front of it, but the elderly barons carrying it thought he was meant to walk under it. So each time he walked in front, they had to adjust their pace, speed so it'd be up like a bit. A caterpillar going but forward. he's then a bit alarmed at this canopy keeping on. So yeah. he also quick, quick step yeah. his pace a bit, and you have this uh, unso- a somewhat unseemly jog trot. Yeah. With uh, these sort of large old men. Yeah. In their fancy Elizabethan outfit. <laughs> Brilliant. Goes without saying, the banquet is also ludicrously magnificent, the largest ever uh, seen. Women still uh, are invited to watch, but not to partake in the feast. Really? They crowd into two tiers of wooden galleries along the hall. Uh, and as the Which feast, hall? Uh, oh. Westminster Hall. Okay. And as the feast drags on, the 2,000 candles lighting the Great Hall increasingly just start to melt hot wax onto all of the women that are just sitting there watching the men eat and get drunk. That, that's meant to be fun for them. Hmm. Less glamorously, the uh, the champion, who is, uh, as we said, we've really moved away from the knight, so it's now a 20-year-old son of a clergyman. <laughs> so far removed that he doesn't even have a horse, so he apparently had to hire one from a circus. <laughs> what a champ. And appropriately for the pinnacle of coronation excess, George IV's coronation really also marks the end of many of the medieval traditions. It's the last time there ever is a coronation banquet, and the last time that there is a champion. 
There's got to have been coronation banquets. No, nope, that's the end. Well, so, so like they just go home and have a pizza, or <laughs> well, maybe I'm sure they will have a, a proper, a nice big dinner. But it's not the grand state. So Charles is not having. I'm sure he'll have a very big dinner with some very notable people, but it's not this sort of public affair in Westminster Hall in the way they did before. Right. Uh, because in contrast to the excessive George IV, William IV, his brother, who becomes king in 1830, is much more thrifty. He would actually have wanted to get rid of the entire ceremony altogether, but oh, was yeah. persuaded that it is constitutional necessity. Uh, but he's determined it will be as cheap and fuss-free as possible. So, as I said, George's coronation cost nearly £240,000. William's cost just 43000 Which William is this? Fourth. Fourth pineapple head. Pineapple head, yeah. Um, traditional Tories apparently were angrily dubbing it the half crown nation. No, oh, fine. Combination because yeah. it's so cheap. Um, in contrast to his brother's elaborate costume, the Archbishop of Canterbury was shocked to find that underneath William's outer robe, he was just dressed in his Admiral of the Fleet uniform. <laughs> and then underneath that, he. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, it does present something of a difficulty when it comes to anointing William's bare chest that he's got this incredibly buttoned. <laughs> He must be absolutely sweltering. Oh, yes. I thought you were going to stay. He was absolutely stark. Okay, I mean, that would be no, another impressive. I mean, I'm considering taking my trousers off again up here. <laughs> uh, William's cheapness was such that when he was meant to make the traditional uh, donation of a few coins, he whispered to the bishop, I haven't got anything. Send it to you tomorrow. <laughs> Good man. I like him. Uh, Macaulay, the historian, was not impressed by this trimmed-down coronation. The Archbishop mumbled, the Bishop of London preached well enough, but not so effectively as the occasion required, and the King behaved very awkwardly, his bearing making the foolish parts of the ritual appear monstrously ridiculous. <laughs> did, I, did we give him the right factor? We did. Okay. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a time of economic depression. It's doubtful if public opinion would have accepted another vast elaborate coronation just yeah. a few years after the previous one he does though introduce one innovation which remains to this day um we no longer have the procession on foot but what william does is uh processed by coach from mm. st james's palace get it done with us with george the third coronation coach and that is now mm. albeit the route's a bit different but that is still yeah the one that gets to westminster abbey now though he's pimped it with suspension these days yeah well yeah actually no i'm saying it was in george's carriage the one to westminster abbey is quite a nice modern one with air conditioning and suspension but from westminster abbey it's in the hideously uncomfortable george the oh. third coach good now it's only seven years until we get the next coronation that is william the fourth's 19 year old niece queen victoria I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna check out mentally. You carry on. Prime Minister Lord Melbourne saw great potential in putting the young Queen on display in terms of public relations, particularly with the fact that a great many of the uh, male population has recently been enfranchised by the Great Reform Act. Uh, railways make it easier for people to get to London now, so something like four hundred thousand people come to swell mm. uh, the crowds in London. It's the largest public procession since Charles II. Scaffoldings built all along the route through the streets of London. Very popularly. Uh, attended uh, political radicals like the Chartists are unhappy at the expense on such a thing while some Tories are critical of having the young queen exposed to the gaze of the populace oh they don't want her to be seen unseemly for all these people common folk to come and look at our young queen weird literally physically look at her uh, but it proves very very popular now Melbourne advises Victoria that she should she should attend a rehearsal at the Abbey yeah because he knows his history, so he thinks maybe let's try and avoid some of these things. Uh, and Victoria later records that she was very glad I went to the Abbey, as I shall know exactly where I am to go. 
Uh, but our optimism, in fact, proves a little bit unfounded. And the historian Roy Strong has written that this was the last of the botched coronations. Good. So Victoria arrives about half an hour late. Uh, when she's presented with the orb, Victoria asked, What am I to do with it? And when she was told, Your Majesty is to carry it, if you please, in your hand, she replied, Am I? It is very heavy. Yeah, these are all good questions. Yes. What is this? Yeah, yeah. What is any of this? What? Yeah, I mean, but she had done a rehearsal already. That might have been in the rehearsal, would you very oh, okay. that that's the first Fine. bit to her. Um, unfortunately, the Bishop of Durham seems to have missed uh, her interaction with the orb, so she later recalled his wayward efforts. He could never tell me what was to take place. He came in not to have delivered the orb to me, but I had already got it. And he, as usual, was so confused and puzzled and knew nothing. <laughs> Indeed, young Benjamin Disraeli, who was there, noted that those involved were always in doubt as to what came next, and you saw the want of rehearsal. Only one new piece of music was commissioned uh, for the coronation, which was probably just as well, because the director, Sir George Smart, rather rashly attempted to both play the organ and conduct <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Uh, resulting in a lack of coordination. It needs, it needs another pair of limbs. Hmm. Uh, at one stage, the Bishop of Bath and Wells turned over two pages at the same time. Brilliant. The order service. Victoria had to instruct him to oh, turn them back. Later, he erroneously sent Victoria off to St Edward's Chapel. Did she need a... No, she didn't need the toilet. She just was confused about what was going on. So he sent her off. Nothing happened, and then someone had to go and get her back. <laughs> they hadn't... Um, they hadn't uh, proofread their <laughs> document where they'd cut something out in Victoria exits. The Archbishop of Canterbury placed the coronation ring on the wrong finger for Victoria, um, which was quite difficult because it was got one? too small for that finger. So he was really forcing it on, causing her quite a bit of pain, and it apparently took her two hours to get it off later in the day. What an imbecile. The most notable mishap was when Lord Roll, after conducting Victoria to the coronation chair, had a roll down the steps uh, to the throne, as Victoria herself noted in her diary. Poor old Lord Roll, who is 82 and dreadfully infirm, fell in attempting to ascend the steps. He rolled right down, but was not the least hurt. When he attempted again to ascend the steps, I advanced to the edge in order to prevent another fall. And that actually became one of the more iconic moments from the coronation. You have the young queen rushing to help uh, the elderly gentleman that uh, fell over. Everyone's very uh, enamoured with this, and it's oh. depicted in quite a lot of artworks. Nice. Uh, not everyone enjoyed the spectacle. Horace Walpole described the coronation as a foolish puppet show. Lady Palmerston promoted it as monkish and twaddling and foolish and spun out, while Harriet Martineau said it was worthy only of the pharaonic times in Egypt and those of the kings in Palestine, offensive to the god of the 19th century in the Western world while the Gentleman's Magazine said that it was compounded of the worst dregs of popery and feudalism. But we're st and we're still enjoying it today. Windsors! Well, it's probably just as well that after three coronations in 17 years, it then will be over 60 years before the next one. Mm. So they get to forget about all the nonsense for a while. Uh, Edward VII, the son of Victoria, has the longest wait of any heir up to that point uh, in history, but he has to wait a little bit longer for his coronation because he was taken ill with an abdominal abscess which his doctors persuaded him really did need quite urgent mm. treatment. Mm. Um, as such, the coronation has to be delayed, though Edward insisted that the many planned regional celebrations went ahead, uh, which included 500,000 dinners being served to the poor oh, uh, nice. of London, which Edward personally contributed £30,000 to. So, but he, he first needs to go through abdominal surgery. Yes. Gosh. 
Wow, that's it was quite dangerous. I mean, you very yeah. very easy could have died in that surgery. Definitely, but he would have been king <laughs> without it because you don't need a coronation. That, but you do need a coronation. Exactly. Yeah, Edward should have leaned back on that. Uh, the delay also resulted in the coronation cases, which uh, ended up in a legal innovation because we have various disputes by people who paid rental contracts so that they can watch the procession and everything going on. But, of course, then the coronation is delayed, so they've got these contracts with no uh. coronation. Now, previously, an unforeseen event which undermined a party's principal purpose for entering into a contract could only be claimed when there was an impossibility, i.e. they couldn't have kept the contract because the house burned down. Yeah. So there's no way that they could do it. But in this case, of course, they could have gone and still been in the house. Yeah. But there would have been no coronation. So instead, the precedent is set of doctrine of the frustration of purpose, which is where you wouldn't undertake it. Otherwise. Without the purpose of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So that does sort of set a... Oh, that's interesting. Now, for this coronation, they're inspired by the success of Victoria's 1897 Diamond Jubilee rather than her coronation. So there was a grand procession through the streets of London. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, albeit the procession that Edward does is after the coronation rather than before it. But that's true of us, isn't it? We've had a lot of practice recently, this sort of thing. Yeah. Now, for the most part, the ceremony went well. The only difficulty came from the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Frederick Temple, was quite old and doddery. Always. So he struggled to read his lines, despite the fact that they were written out for him in very large, prompt cards. Uh, had to be helped to his feet, including by Edward, whenever he got down onto his knees. <laughs> Uh, he nearly dropped the consecration bread at one point, and the Bishop of Bath and Wells recalled that the actual central moment of the entire ceremony didn't go according to plan. Though I suppose it ought not to get out, the Archbishop, who could not see well, put the crown the wrong way to the front, <laughs> and endeavouring to alter it made it worse, and I had to take hold of it with the hand and help to put it straight on his head. I, it feels like the stakes are so high, it's impossible not <laughs> to have a moment of utter farce. <laughs> Uh, not surprisingly, Edward kept muttering throughout the ceremony, I am very anxious about the Archbishop. <laughs> yes, yeah. We all are, sir. We all are. In fairness to the Archbishop, Edward was unusually crowned with the Imperial State crown rather than St. Edward's crown. Makes sense, though, doesn't it? Um, well, it was on account of the fact that he was still convalescing from his operation, so basically the crown would have been too heavy for him. The oh, right, I thought because it was crown. the Empire. No, 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 no. No, so they always have the Imperial State Crown, but that comes after St. Edward's. But in this case, it was like, let's just do the small one. Yeah. Um, the coronation does have some more intentional innovations. Um, a, a request was made to record the ceremony on a, a gramophone record. Ooh. Uh, but they said no. Oh. But it was the first one to have the procession in the Abbey photographed. Yeah. It was also the first to consider the implications of empire. So prime ministers and governors general of dominions are in attendance, as well as various sort of Indian princes yeah. uh the delay though meant that not as many of the notable guests as would have attended are there because they have to go home they can't stay for months so yeah. ambassadors tended to represent them but nevertheless there is now a sense of a global coronation yeah 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 now a change edward hadn't been able to make was the coronation oath because by 1900 people are no longer excluded from public office on the basis of religion mm. except for the monarch oh yeah because public office i suppose yeah um, and the, but the virulently anti-Catholic wording of the coronation oath is a bit out of step with the times. Um, wasn't time for Edward to avoid it, but he asked the Prime Minister if the law could be changed. And by 1911, George V flat out refused to say the words. Which they were? Uh, I don't have them written down actually, but basically it's just kill Catholics, evil Catholic popery, blah blah blah. Uh, so eventually, the uh, Prime Minister Asquith and the Archbishop Randall Davison devised a new wording. 
said, I declare that I am a faithful Protestant, and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne of my realm, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers, according to the law. Sounds like should be a lawyer involved in it. Well, that is it, basically. It's like, we still need to make very clear that you are Protestant, but we'll take out some of the... Um, yeah. And that was Anne that put all that in? Uh, this is for George V. But put all the um, oh yeah, it's, it's from yeah from the glorious revolution that they think. Yeah. Let's really make quite clear that we don't approve of Catholics. And this is now the twentieth century. Yes, and we're still making making that clear one way or the other. Mm. We still need to make clear that we're not Catholic, but maybe we could do that by saying that we're Protestant rather than that we hate Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, George V's coronation is also a grand celebration of empire. Lord Kitchener commanded fifty thousand troops lining the route of the procession and you have military contingents from all over the world mm. i.e. the British Empire bits of the world mm. which is all over the world they took things a step further when George and his Queen Mary of Tech go to India for a Delhi Durbar so it's effectively him being uh, having a coronation as Emperor of India wow probably the apotheosis of the British Empire yeah. um, there was some debate over who should crown George because it's inappropriate to have an Archbishop do it in a non-Christian country but equally it doesn't feel appropriate for well, for the for the if you are an emperor, hmm. who's going to crown an emperor? Uh, in the end, they decided that he would just go as emperor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes in, he rides into the Durbar wearing his crown. Um, impressive, though, less impressive than a lot of people hoped because they'd been hoping that he'd come in on an elephant. I was going to ask if he'd come in. I wanted him yeah, on an elephant. That's what they wanted, but no, just a horse. Missed opportunity. Yeah. That's really disappointing. Hmm. This is for um, people of that sort. This is, as you say, the pinnacle of empire. Yeah, and a um, rather blunt. I hear empire. I think elephant. Yeah, uh, he receives homage from various native princes before making a balcony appearance at the Red Fort. Oh yeah, I've been there to a crowd, uh, a crowd of uh, half a million people. I think it's Jaipur. Mm. Is it? Yeah. Like that. Maybe. Now the next coronation is the second one that wasn't. Edward VIII oh, yeah. ends up abdicating the throne before he'd even made it to the coronation. But again, he does still count, even without the coronation. Um, but yeah, so he ends up abdicating before he even had his coronation. Um, if he'd had his own way, he might not have had one anyway. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cosmo Lang, recorded that Edward had asked first if the service might be shortened. Indeed, he began by saying he hoped the whole service might not be used. Mm. Cosmo uh, is such a great name. Yeah. He accepted the coronation would be required, but uh, decided to go on holiday, which was a rather notorious cruise with Wallace Simpson, oh, yeah. and tasked his brother, the Duke of York, with attending all the planning meetings in his stead. The future king. Well, indeed, appropriately, of course, because when Ab Edward abdicated, it was his brother, the Duke of York, who became King George VI. And he'd planned his own... So he'd planned the coronation. Indeed, they make when the, it changes, they make no reference to the change, and they just carry on as if everything's the same. Even to the extent, of course, that it's the same day. Get the name wrong just a different name but they also have to add the fact that there will be a queen because he is married yeah uh, queen wow. mother so we now know her but yes yeah, so it meant that George is actually very well uh, versed in everything that's going to happen uh, Have they have rehearsals which all go very well apart from one moment when they thought that the orb had gone missing mm. uh, it turned out that six year old princess Margaret had just taken it off to play with oh. uh, whole coronation is masterminded and controlled by the Archbishop Cosmo Lang who sees it as an opportunity for the nation's spiritual renewal Mm. Uh, for this reason he was unusually open to innovation such as the coronation being broadcast on the radio by the BBC good because he wants everyone to be spiritually renewed parts of the service are filmed and shown in cinemas and the state oh. procession outside is shown live on the BBC which is the first major outside broadcast 
Wow, what year is this? 36. No, 36 or 37? 37. Yeah, okay. Uh, Cosmo's so in control of events that he was concerned George would spoil his big day by uh, on account of the fact that he had a stutter. Mm. So uh, Cosmo wanted Spoil to his big death. <laughs> so uh, the Archbishop wanted to replace George VI's uh, speech therapist Lionel Logue with someone of his own choosing but George uh, stuck with Logue and delivered his lines without any issue mm. and indeed it was actually the bishops who came the closest in messing things up uh, Lang himself rather clumsily held his thumb over the vital words for George's oath so he was struggling <laughs> to be able to see it <laughs> uh, and at one point another bishop was standing on George's robe effectively pinning him to the spot so George later recorded in his diary, I had to tell him to get off pretty sharply. <laughs> and then the next coronation, of course, was the last that we uh, yeah. will cover, Elizabeth II. Hers was the first to be fully televised, apart from the moment of the anointing, mm. which has also be the case for Charles III. Apart from the moment of anointing? Yeah. Why? Because uh, that's considered too sacred to show. On film? Hmm. Well, they're Aborigines now. They have that thing where if you have a photo, it takes a piece of their soul. Hmm. If that's so now they're making new rules to t- take into account the <laughs> new technology. Yeah. Have we not learned anything? Goodness gracious, figure live. Well, the idea of it being televised, that any of it being televised was met with significant opposition. The Archbishop thought it would turn a sacred space into a public spectacle. Earl Marshall thought it would destroy the mystique of the monastery. And Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, thought it would destroy the solemnity of the occasion. So it was only really Elizabeth's own intervention which forced their hand. She said, I think we should do it. And they they do. And it proved a, a milestone moment in the culture of television in this country. An estimated 27 million people watched and many bought a TV for the first time just so they could watch the coronation. But we're still not getting the oil bit, which but we uh, still don't get the oil. And he's um, so that's the moment then, presumably, when they put the oils into the reptilian eyes and <laughs> everything. That's why they're hiding it. <laughs> I mean, let's have some clarity here. Incredibly, Elizabeth's coronation was not only um, shown on TV, but it was also filmed in 3D. Yeah, no, I remember this from the first. Uh, but it never ended up being shown in cinemas as bad, I guess, because everyone had watched it well, on telly, so what's the point? It was the best part of 60 years before 3D TVs <laughs> came out. Well, it was about 60 years before somebody finds it. I was like, oh, yeah, we did this. <laughs> wow. After the coronation, Elizabeth II made a broadcast to the nation about actually her upcoming queenship and coronation, included some rather apt words for us. These ceremonies you have seen today are ancient, and some of their origins are veiled in the mists of the past, but their spirit and their meaning shine through the ages, never perhaps more brightly than now. Oh. <laughs> and here we are. She's she's off, and we're in the 21st century, adrift alone, <laughs> without a king or queen on with a crown on the bonds. If we've learnt anything, it's that we re- record it on a... <laughs> Monday, <laughs> um, and you don't necessarily need a crown. Well, I mean, it's confusing for you because the bank holiday for the coronation is on a Monday, but the coronation is on a Saturday. So what does that mean? I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. Because if I'm completely honest, <laughs> I was surprised that you suggested today as a recording date because <laughs> I thought he was getting crowned today. Okay, we've got to get him quickly. I mean, I said, well, if you want, fine. But that's why I suggested doing it at any time over the weekend. Well, we can. We've got to get it out before the coronation. Oh, but, all right, well, it's up to you. He's got to do research <laughs> on a mind. So what is going on then? So today is the normal early May Day bank holiday. 
that you'd always have at the okay. start of May. On Saturday, it's the coronation. It's just that people are talking about the coronation all the, when it's not the coronation. Yeah. I think and it's next Monday, it's a bank holiday because you've got to have a bank holiday because it's a royal event, even though the royal event isn't on the Monday. So what is happening on the Monday? Uh, I think the idea is that everyone does something in the community, something nice in the community. Oh. Are you doing something nice in the community? I'm doing something nice in the community. Yes. (laughs) Oh, okay. You've been hoodwinked into coronation service. I have. Yeah. What is it we're doing? We always um, clean the pool and stuff. Uh, well, I guess everyone in their own way finds some way to <laughs> create a hole. <laughs> but then we do that anyway, regardless of who's um... <laughs> being crowned. <on. laughs> yeah. But anyway. Well, when you're there cleaning whatever is on the pool, you can think that essentially it's because of Dunstan that I'm having to do this today. Well, that'll that'll help the occasion along. Oh, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm I wasn't best pleased that I wasn't spending the time in the garden, and now. And so it's Dunstan. Yeah, Dunstan's taken away your garden day. Dunstan's got you doing some cleaning instead of being in the garden. I actually flushed really hot. (laughs) I actually genuinely went a bit warm. For some people, it'll be Zadok the Priest. It'll be the the, uh, the sight of the crown going on the head. For you, it was the moment that you realised that Dunstan, a thousand years ago, started a ceremony that has lost you time in the garden. And he's making me scrub algae off the bottom of a municipal pool. I'm absolutely fuming. Yeah. Goodness sake. I'm not doing it out of protest now. I think I'm, I'm really annoyed. <laughs> Bloody Dunstan. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, I'd say that it wasn't his intention, but I think if we went back, back in time and told him about it, he'd probably be happy. I really want to clean the pool, though, and I don't conflicted. <laughs> Correspondence Corner. That is the history of the coronation. Um, as I said, we are, we're not looking ahead to the coronation that is to come with Charles III and Camilla, but as we've said, whether they have back-to-front crowns or reversing bishops or whatever else is going on, it will largely be Dunstan ceremony. Well, something's got to go wrong, hasn't it? Because something has in all the others. <laughs> something goes wrong. Yeah, look for it. If someone can spot it, it'd be like, where's Wally? Whatever occurs and goes wrong, that is uh, all from us today. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are, at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Or you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get loads of bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And if you're on Patreon, you get to join our Discord, which is which is the Rex Factor community. Mm, apart from all the ones who aren't on Discord. Apart from all the ones, those, yeah. They, but the more of you that join the better and bigger yeah. the community on Discord gets. It's a fun, it's a chat thing. Yeah, it's mm. good. I mean, I was intimidated, but I enjoy it. Mm. Uh, and we have new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Taylor Pussman, David Maxton, Carrie Lowe, Brian Smith, Paul Kibbert, Tim Maxted, Miriam Centeno, Christine Copps, Matthew Jeffrey, Becky Lee, Taylor Caprios, Rachel Birch, Peter Brown, Bob Hannon, Nancy Walton, Maria Hunter, Miguelito Carianidis, Claire Lee, Elspeth Olson, oh. Lindsay, Wacken 0013, Catherine McLaren, Louise Markey, Stephanie Dornelm, and Jason Harrison. Hey, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ali. <laughs> 
so that is all from us today. Next time we will be back to the Tudors for one uh, last time in that miniseries as we speak to Professor Susanna Lipscomb about the enigma no. that is Henry VIII, alias Groaning, not because it was an enjoyable chat, but just because he... Uh, made a fool of himself. Thinks he made a fool of himself. I think it was fine. I mean, I haven't listened to it yet, so I can't oh. say that definitely, but I'm sure it's fine. See you next time. Cheerio.